A very warm welcome to you all. My name's Chris Oakley. Again. Sorry, was I was supposed to keep forgetting. I'm supposed to come in now. I'm expecting you to say, and this Episode is... Episode 3. <laughs> yeah, well, last week I got confused and called myself Chris Oakley. Uh, I am Rich Johnson. Hello to you all. Excellent. And this is episode three of the Football Attic Rewind, sponsored by Forster Spa Banken, banking Swedish style. Uh, as ever, we're here once again to pluck an old episode of Match of the Day or the Big Match from obscurity and assess everything we see or hear within it that's of any interest or significance. Today's episode sees us heading back a whopping 46 years to review an episode of the big match that was originally broadcast on Sunday the 7th of December 1975. We'll be looking at that very shortly, but first of all I'm very pleased to say that for the first time on the Football Attic Rewind we have a guest who's going to be joining us for an hour or two of reminiscence. He's an 80s movie podcaster par excellence and more significantly Given our lengthy discussion about Scandinavian advertising sponsors on the last episode, a master blogger on the subject of Finnish football, it's Rich Nelson. Hello, Rich. Hello, or should I say, Moi Mitakulu. Yes, oh, do the that went down well. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that, no, I think I used the word war crimes on your last episode. You did. Because the diplomatic that, incident actually. for which you will pay. Hmm. <laughs> Let's go to the Hague. <laughs> Hague. Proper, authentic Scandinavian ex- accent, Rich. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we'll we'll have a chat about your uh, fine blogging and podcasting projects later on, but for the time being, uh, a brief word about that last episode. Uh, I'm led to believe there were a few issues that you wanted to raise. Um, please feel free to do so. The floor is yours. Um, it was mostly just the, the, the accents. I think the rest of it, most of the sponsors <laughs> were... Um, because they were Norwegian and Swedish, um, had no had no real beef for those. But um, it was interesting. One of I think one of your correspondents after the episode pointed out that in the Nordic countries at that time and the last episode in the eighties, uh, there was always an English football match on on a Saturday afternoon, mm. which is why English football was so popular over there. And yes. uh, my wife and her family, also growing up in Finland, they all supported mainly Liverpool because they were the most successful team at the time because it was easier to watch a Liverpool game than any local team and, and that was pretty much it. So, um, yeah, it's um, nice to see. I mean, I, I had no idea that it went back that far with sponsorship and uh, right. actually paying for Hillsborough to have the boards in the language just for the uh, the locals to see. It was uh, interesting times. It was indeed, yes, absolutely. And um, and we should be calling you something like uh, Media Darling because you've uh, been putting yourself about on, on any number of different channels, BBC World News, Israeli TV. Um, give the listeners some idea of how that came about and why you were doing this wonderful work. Oh, dear. Uh, there were some diplomatic incidents there. Um, <laughs> I um, Yeah, so from I've been watching Finnish football for the best part of 10 years now and... At the time of recording, we're in the middle of Euro 2020 and Finland have finally qualified for a tournament at the 38th time mumble, of asking mumble. or something like that. Yeah. So um, <laughs> there's been a lot of interest in, in Finland and, and finally all those hard years of watching Finland lose to Estonia and Belarus have paid off. And uh, I Great. can sit in my daughter's bedroom and have some moomins in the background and uh, to talk, talk to people on Israeli TV, and I don't know what the captions were under my name on the TV, but um, yeah, and um, yeah, we've done done a few bits because uh, the guys I do the Finnish football show podcast with, some of them have been, uh, I, I won't use a horrific term, but uh, p- 
putting themselves about across uh, <laughs> most of the mainstream media. So we've um, make making hay while the sun shines. Because to be honest, I don't know how long we'll have to wait for the next one. <laughs> good for you. Well done. Good stuff. It's always good to see people sort of finally getting the turn in the spotlight as they indeed should do. So well done all that. Whoring themselves it's about, to... as it's known in the media. Well, no. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> yes, but they, they make money, though. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Well, it's good to have you on the podcast today, anyway, Rich, and, oh, and we'll let you loose on an old episode of The Big Match very shortly. But first of all, I think I need to uh, initiate a system of identification for this podcast. Uh, perhaps if I can call you Rich N and Rich J accordingly, uh, that might work best for all concerned. I think that's uh, that's what we'll do. Um, anyway, Rich J, haven't asked you how you are yet. How have you been since episode two? I have been fine, thank you, Chris. Uh, obviously, the Euros have started, good. so... I'm, you know, in my usual phase of trying to watch every single match and feeling very fatigued by it all. I think I actually, I think I fell asleep in the second half of the Croatia versus Czech Republic match yesterday um, because I was just, I'm just like kind of worn out with it already. It's like you reach a point. It's normally, um, <laughs> I had a flashback memory pop, uh, pop up on Facebook the other day. And it said something like, anyone for Ivory Coast v Japan. <laughs> and I remember that distinctly because <laughs> I was going to watch that. That was on at like two in the morning. And I think I was going to watch it. And in the end, that was the first match that took the hit where I didn't watch it. So, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying the football, but also suffering that sort of fatigue you get from the first round where there's three games a day, you know. Um, mm. and the problem I've got as well, but it's not a problem really, is that because I finish work at five, I can usually get home sort of fairly quickly and catch most of the five o'clock match. So there's only like the two o'clock ones I've missed. Um, um, but yeah, it's it's going well. I mean, it was England-Scotland last night, which was a match. Um, a game to remember. Yeah, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Scotland, Scotland did well. Uh, you know, they came to do a job and they did that job really well. Um, England looked absolutely clueless, um, which was a bit disappointing because mm. they'd sort of... In, I thought in the first match against Croatia, they'd sort of looked like they had some ideas um, and it looked like we were going to sort of improve on them. It, it, it kind of felt like it was a first match, you know, and it was the first time we'd ever won our opening match of the Euros. So it kind of felt like, OK, we'll build from there. And we seem to have gone backwards. Um, and that's not, again, yeah. it's not denigrating Scotland in any way. It's just that, I mean, they played a very good defensive game and could easily have scored against us. But we just, I mean, especially in the last sort of 20 minutes, we just looked absolutely clueless. I remember at one point we were passing the ball around for like five solid minutes without even getting anywhere near their goal. I'm thinking, have you forgotten what the, what the point of football is, you know? But hey-ho, that's, that's my life. So yeah, other than the football, not really much happening at all. Fair enough. And and Rich N, um, you've uh, been enjoying a, a brief resting period uh, from the Betamax Video Club podcast of late. Uh, apart from being on the Finnish football show and stuff like that, what else have you been uh, doing to occupy your time? Um, well, w- without gorging myself on um, on the joyous football festival that is spread over so many countries and you have no idea which country the game's being played in. It's um, yeah, still... <laughs> You know, occasionally I, I've been known to watch films for for pleasure as well as for work. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but in the process of starting another podcast because you can't have enough 
um, looking at looking at films still, but <coughs> movie relationships. But I'm uh, I'm still trying to wangle a way of getting some films in that have a football link. So uh, something like Fever <laughs> Fever Pitch. But uh, uh-huh. I did uh, Escape to Victory for BMX Video Club at the start of the year, and I don't think there were too many romances there. I mean, there was one woman, <laughs> I think, in the whole movie, and. Yes. Uh, Unless there were any scenes with John Walk and Pele behind the scenes when the camera stopped rolling. <laughs> Cut from the final yeah. edit. With yes. uh, Pele with his Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that came up. That's what she said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did, you, did you know, just a little aside here, that Peter Serafinovich did the sort of uh, the voice oh, for yes. Pele voice. Um, when, he, when his adverts were translated <laughs> into English? Um <laughs> and he'd never heard of Pele. <laughs> I thought he was called Peel. Thought he was called Peel. Bless him. Um, I, since the last podcast, um, it's been a bit of a tumultuous period for me because uh, about two or three weeks ago, I was nearly flooded out of my house. That was a nice thing that happened. I, like in the last podcast, I had literally nothing to talk about. <laughs> like my life was about as boring and as empty as it could be. And since then, everything's been going on. Um, the river that flows not far from where I live here in New Zealand. Um, basically broke its banks after four days of torrential rain and um, and we were told by the local council um, pack some bags get them in the car you might need to be evacuated during the night to a local community center so um, you, you might get a call in the early hours bye and I thought oh good <laughs> excellent um, this is a bit this is all a bit new I never really lived this close to a river before but um, anyway thankfully we were spared that uh, eventuality by a sort of gnat kneecap. Uh, we we just about managed to stay where we were and um, but yes it's um, it's been fun and games um, just sort of basically trying to get from one side of town to the other because there's a bridge that goes over the river and that slumped because of the uh, one of the footings in the bridge um, subsided in the river ah oh, dear it's it's been wonderful and then just as I thought life couldn't get any any more unpredictable uh, and then my computer stopped working about a week ago couldn't log into Windows couldn't do nothing and I thought well this is this is good fun pass me my red tablet um and uh basically I've been spending the last week or so just kind of reinstalling everything on my computer and miraculously here we are like I thought at some point I thought this isn't going to happen this weekend but but here we are and uh, and we're podcasting and and we hope that you appreciate uh, the time and effort that's gone into making this happen so there we are so that's what's been going with me anyway it's very nearly time to put on our tartan-lined Bay City Rollers jackets and our cork-heeled boots. But before we get into today's episode of The Big Match, let's get into the time cupboard here in the attic, which is a thing, I've just invented it, so there. <laughs> um, and head back to December 1975. Now, Rich J, I'm guessing you still had much to learn about life uh, at this point, did you not? Yes, well, I would have been, what, nine months old? So, and in, in tribute to that, um, I am recording this episode wearing nothing but a nappy to get that sense of what it was like in 1975. This is going out as a video podcast, isn't it? <laughs> this is now. <laughs> on the fetish site, <laughs> for Patreon members only, <laughs> on the, on the God tier level. <laughs> well, there's an image that none of us can unsee anymore. Um <laughs> And uh, and Rich N, I'm, I must be honest, I don't actually know exactly how old you are. It's none of my business, frankly. But, I mean, had you been born by this point? And if so, what little do you remember from this time? Um, no, I was about four years from uh, arriving on the planet at this point. Minus so, four. Yeah, so uh, I, I still had quite a lot to learn. I was still finding my way into wherever <laughs> needed to be. So I this was, yeah, this was a voyage far beyond what I knew. So, uh, yes, I... 
Yeah, the, and even the films, some of which we'll, we'll come on to from the sponsor yeah. boards, I, I still don't <laughs> think I'm old enough to view. So. Well, no, indeed. More of which later. Um, I was four years old at this point, and I must be honest, I remember virtually nothing of what was going on at this time. Like, I, my team West Ham won the FA Cup that year. I don't remember any of that. I, that was that could have happened on another planet, as far as I'm concerned. Because, um, like, my earliest memories, I think, from from when I was about seven, and I must admit, I'm always a bit staggered. If you listen to other people's podcasts and things, and you hear people talking, sometimes you hear people say, oh, um, yeah, I remember when I was four, blah, 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 this happened. I think, how do you remember stuff from when you were four? I mean, I just wanted to touch base with both of you. Do either of you have any memories from that early in your lives? Well, I mean, mm. I broke my arm when I was four, um, so oh, well, that would be quite well. Yeah, it was just before I started major. school, so I was four, like, and a bit. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'd have probably been four and a half. Yeah, I, I mean, that was pretty major. It was agony. Uh, I remember screaming a lot, a lot of blood. Uh, that was from when Nido. I fell off a bike. I think I've talked about this on a podcast before. My brother, I was on the back of my brother's bike, and he rode it straight into the garage door down a, a, a sloping drive. Um, oh, but he jumped. Yeah, he jumped off at the last minute and left me to crash into the door, um, and I fell off the bike, skidded my knee across the the sort of gravelly tarmac, um, slicing my knee open, <coughs> and I broke yeah. my left wrist just before I started school. So that was good. And then, in weird sort of um, mirroring of events, years later, my daughter broke her wrist falling off a bike. Um, just before, I think it was just before she started senior school, or it might have been at the end of her first year. I can't remember. It was just before she went back to school, though. So, yeah. And then, did you jump off at the last minute, or <laughs> no? I slammed it into the garage. <laughs> I went, feel what I felt, <laughs> learn. <laughs> no, it wasn't me riding uh, the bike. Obviously, <laughs> I can't ride a bike. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, so you'd have had good reason to remember something quite as momentous as that yes i, I do remember that i also remember having a hulk t-shirt which was cool me and my brother had matching hulk t-shirts which were ace um i'm trying to think what else uh i might have remembered going to the uh the town and country festival every summer like which we used to do and my relatives would come down for the weekend on bank holiday weekend um and other than that no not much really just just vague sort of occasional memories of being a baby and doing stupid things like kind of <laughs> it wasn't me, but my brother did something about it. There's always like <clears throat> a, a sort of memory you have as a child of doing something stupid. My brother's was he, um, he was upstairs in mum and dad's bedroom and uh, he'd got hold of like a talcum powder sort of shaker thing and he'd been uh-huh. shaking it all over the bedroom. And mum came into the bedroom and he just went, powder. <laughs> It was like the room was white. <laughs> Powder. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll tell a lie. I, mean, I have one memory from when I was three, and that is that, and somewhat embarrassingly, it was me sitting on a potty in the middle of the kitchen floor looking up at the clock on the wall. But that's about the only thing I've got from pre-four years old. I don't know. That's, uh, that's very abstract. Strange, really. <laughs> that sounds like, know, are you sure you didn't watch really. that in a film or something? Like, uh, sort of no, John, John I can still picture it now. It's, I, Miraculously, I can still. I don't know Jim what the time Jarmusch. was on the clock, but my memory doesn't. I say John Jarmusch. <laughs> Jim Jarmusch. Sorry. Going off for Anyway, uh, we must move on. Um, well, as ever, 
I've bought myself a computer from the era that we're discussing so that uh, I can get access to all the information I need right throughout this podcast. Uh, As you'll appreciate, 1975 was a little ahead of the home computing boom that was to arrive later, but uh, I'm pleased to say I've managed to track down an IBM 5100. Uh, It's got a 16-bit processor, 64 kilobytes of memory, a 5-inch diagonal 64-character screen, and it can read quarter-inch magnetic tape cartridges. It was an absolute steal at eight thousand nine hundred and seventy-five US dollars. Nice, nice bit of kit. Now I'm all hooked up to the information highway. Let's be reminded of what life was like on December the seventh, nineteen seventy-five. Well, one week before this episode of the big match that we're watching, the name Microsoft was used for the first time in a letter sent by Bill Gates to Paul Allen. That's micro hyphen soft to you. Um, Paul Allen, the the Tottenham footballer, <laughs> not the former Tottenham and West Ham footballer. <laughs> alas, no, I don't think he was involved in the uh, development of the world's largest software company. Um, the day before this episode of the big match, an IRA bomb exploded in the Oxford Street branch of CNA in London, but it went off around midnight rather than the intended afternoon shopping period, and thankfully, no one was hurt. But on this day, Can I just point out that that would have meant that that would have meant that um, you know there would virtually no ski wear that year then. <laughs> Since that was the place <laughs> to get ski wear. See and well, indeed, see jumpers and skiing jackets, coats and hats, as I like to refer, <laughs> refer to it. Uh, and on this day, on the very day of this uh, episode of the big match, the Sunday Mirror was asking, "Will the Queen retire?" One of its writers informed readers, the Queen may end her brilliant reign by abdication, not this year, not next year, but it is possible that she will consider giving up the throne within the next 10 or 15 years. Stops, looks at watch. (laughs) Uh, Now, on the box today, what would you have seen on the box on the 7th of December 1975? Well, on BBC One, you could have seen Laurel and Hardy. That's your actual Laurel and Hardy rather than the cartoon, which was regrettable I'll, I'll just leave it there um the osmonds they were on and uh, songs of praise because of course this was a sunday the big match predominantly went out on a sunday on bbc2 you'd have seen uh, international tennis and on itv on this day apart from the big match you could have seen celebrity squares uh, and upstairs downstairs uh, any of those programs lighting a candle gents I'd be um, interested to know which celebrities were on Celebrity Squares in 1975. Lenny Bennett. Nothing that ages these shows more than seeing who's actually on it and who's who's on the B or C list at the time. <laughs> and who's, on, who's on police lists these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was always Willie Rushton in the middle, that much I remember. Lenny Bennett was always um, there. But and again, that might have been an 80s thing. But I mean, what was Lenny Bennett actually famous for? Other than being on Celebrity he was, Squares, um, he was in a he was in a double act with another fella who um, I think they fell out in the end, and then the other guy went off, and Lenny Bennett carried on presenting programs and quiz shows and silly things like that. Lucky Ladders, wasn't it? Did is that one? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. That sounds about right. Anyway, at the movies uh, around this time, uh, what could you have seen? You could have seen Rollerball, the science fiction sports film starring James Kahn. Uh, Rooster Coburn, John Wayne's penultimate film. If you discount a disputed voice credit as Garindon in Star Wars, do either of you two know about this? Who? John Wayne. No, Apparently, I know John Wayne. Who was the character? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's um yeah. Apparently, he voiced a minor character in the original Star Wars film. Now, I, I say voiced. 
it might be an urban myth, but there are websites out there that reckon it happened, and they reckon that his voice was sort of over-processed to give it a sort of technical, computery sounding twang to the to the extent that you can't even tell it's him. So sounds a bit dubious to me, but um, yes, just one to follow I, up, listeners. I've, I've never heard of that. I mean, I, I know they to to make the voices of like Chewbacca, and they kind of merged various that's things right. together but I, i've never heard that john wayne was in there but i suppose that's the sort of thing that if they did it now what was it they when they, they re-released it a couple of years ago and i think when greedo gets shot he says mcclunky yeah and you kind of think McClung- <laughs> mcclunky sounds a bit like a john wayne sort of latter-day film a bit like McHugh <laughs> or something like that yes <laughs> does anyone know what mcclunky mcclunky was just just <laughs> why he said McClunkly. it just maybe it means it's don't a shoot mystery. Yeah, <laughs> there is a video on YouTube. Um, if you look up John Wayne Star Wars, you'll you'll find it. But the thing is, yes, it sounds like they, apparently it's like an unprocessed version. But they, as somebody pointed out, I think in the comments, like they could have just like stitched in his voice from another audio file. It could have been just that. So it's it's all very murky, listeners. It's, but it's um, like when you see the clips of um, Darth Vader when it's voiced by um, David Prowse. <laughs> Dave Prowse, who are. <laughs> yeah. Take them back to my trap. I mean ship, not tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Bail that bloody uh, hay. <laughs> and uh, one other film, of course, you could have seen at the time was Emmanuel, but um, but we'll be talking at greater length about that in due course. Greater length. And- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Please. Um, in the shops at this time, um, a packet of 20 Benson & Hedges Sovereign Extra Mild Cigarettes would have cost you 31.5p, which is about £3.31 in today's money. Uh, Curry's were selling an ITT cassette recorder for £32.95 in 1975 money, that was. That's 280 quid in today's money for a cassette recorder. Jeepers. And they also had a 12-inch black and white portable TV for £67.50, which is about 575 quid in today's money. Uh, You need to be earning about five and a half million quid a year, I think, to be able to afford some of these things. We don't know we're born. Indeed, indeed. Um, what was all the rage around this time? Well, electronic calculators, they were the thing to have. £10.95 would have got you one of those. That's about 90 quid now, adjusted for inflation. Uh, digital watches, they were becoming the thing. And uh, super 8mm home movie equipment uh, for all those, in quotes, special films that you want to show <laughs> your neighbours. Um Celebrity birthdays, people celebrating their birthday on this day. Sue Johnston, the actress, she was 32. Mike Nolan from Bucks Fizz, he was 21. And Colin Hendry, Blackburn Rovers, Coventry and Scotland Defender, was just 10 years old on this day. Uh, In the music charts, uh, number one single in the UK was Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. And uh, the number one album, improbably, was... (laughs) 40 Greatest Hits by Perry Como. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) Because that was the state of the music industry in the UK back in 1975. Released on KTEL. A golden age. Indeed. Could well have been KTEL. My dad probably would have bought all the copies of that because he was a bit of an easy listening fanatic. He had all these Sunday mornings he'd put on like Andy Williams or Perry Como, something like that. We we had lots of the old rock classics. Uh, (laughs) And those, I think we talked about those before as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, just in case you were starting to wonder what on earth was happening in the charts back then um, just to reassure you at number two in the album charts was A Night at the Opera by Queen so it wasn't all bizarre surreal stuff just just Queen um, on, just Queen 
Um, on the front cover of your favourite footy magazines, on uh, the front cover of Shoot magazine was Martin Peters of Norwich City, fending off the attentions of Aston Villa's Brian Little and Keith Leonard. And on the front cover of World Soccer was the Czechoslovakia team. Uh, they'd uh, beaten England in a Euro 76 qualifier at the end of October, and they'd go on to host and win Euro 76 the following year. In football news, the Daily Mirror were reporting that Queen's Park Rangers were on the verge of axing Stan Bowles, hoping instead to snap up George Best, but then probably so was everybody else at the time. Uh, Stan Bowles stayed at QPR until 1979. Also, several clubs were said to be on the brink of financial ruin, among them Luton Town, Stoke City, Sheffield United, Chelsea, Notts County and Portsmouth. Southport, meanwhile, were yet to win a match in their current Division 4 campaign, and were said to be in danger of folding. And they ended up limping on until the end of the 77-78 season, replaced by Wigan Athletic in the end. Uh, Top of the first division on this day was Queen's Park Rangers, level on points with Derby County. Sheffield United were on the bottom of the the first division, with only one win from 20 matches. Some things never change. Um, Sunderland were leading Division 2. Crystal Palace were top of Division 3, and Lincoln City were top of Division 4. Meanwhile, in Scotland, Celtic were top of the newfangled Premier Division. There you go. Right, nostalgia lovers, that was December 1975. It's time to rewind and watch the big match. And don't forget, if you want to see what this episode was like, you'll find it on YouTube or else look for the link that we've helpfully provided wherever you downloaded this podcast. with the theme tune the big match theme tune we hear the parping brass of uh, a piece of music called La Soiree by David Ordini it's the third big match theme tune what are we thinking of that it's one of my favourites yeah it's um, I think going back and watching it again and and I think it was retuned and reconditioned for various other uses over the years but going back and hearing that immediately feel that nostalgia watching (laughs) and it's nostalgia for a time that I wasn't alive which is always a a weird (laughs) kind of scenario to be in but it's it's like watching match of the day now you just hear the theme tune and it kicks in and watching this you you miss it because you don't hear it anymore mm-hmm. and um it does really sort of take you back to uh, i'll say a golden age because this wasn't really a golden age of football <laughs> at all but it was um it was so nice to hear and and in a way that wasn't overdone with synthesizers that we got in the 80s absolute proper orchestra no mucking around with that. Oh, see, I'd have, pref- I'd yes. have preferred the Boston Pops disco version myself. The <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> one thing I noticed was it seemed to go on for blooming ages. It, it's like it was like the extended <laughs> remix of it. It just seemed to it because it, it kind of has the opening bit and then it kind of goes into like the sort of the middle eight, I guess you might call it. And it's just and then it just seemed yeah. to carry on and it was just like oh okay, <laughs> off. No. The one thing I noticed about the opening titles though. I'm sure the last shot were of two women footballers. Either yes. that or yes. very top-heavy yeah. men, you know. Um, <laughs> which, well, this is true. Because did they show women's football in the big match? I, I have no idea. Obviously, it was the 70s. I was nine months old. I had no idea. Well, this is one of the things I was going to mention, actually, in, in regard to the big match, in, in terms of comparing it with match of the day, was... The big match, because it went out on a Sunday afternoon, had that slightly more leisurely, informal sort of feel to it. And they were prone to 
having features in the program that were a lot more sort of light-hearted. Instead, instead of like on the big match where it was like highlights, uh, look at the tables, results, highlights, look at the tables, finish, get out, finished. On the big match, you'd have things like readers' letters, which we're going to be coming on to a bit <laughs> later on, and and they'd have sort of nostalgia bits like you know where are they now? Where they'd sort of try and track down an old footballer and find out what what they're doing in their lives since they retired and all that sort of stuff. So. There was that. And one of the things I think they focused on, I think it might have been the season before, was the novelty of gasp, women's football. <laughs> and I think that shot, or the, the shot at the end there that you're talking about, the end of the credits, was I think that's from German football, German women's football at the time. And um, yes, the the hilarity of, of watching uh, women play football um, and one of which, I'm sorry, I did notice, but didn't seem to be wearing a bra. There you go. I said it. I mean, I think that was why it was included in the title. <laughs> yeah, knowing, knowing the 70s, yes. Yeah, but I don't think the uh, sports bra technology had come along at that point. And I guess they had something to outrage the Songs of Praise crew later on. It was just a, a early TV war. <laughs> I was going to say, I, certainly, I know that by the 80s, sports bra technology had evolved quite a bit because I remember seeing it quite a lot in the Grattan catalogue. Um, the sports bra <laughs> section. <laughs> Good old sluggy. Sluggy. <laughs> Good grief. Here's a name I haven't heard a long time. Sorry, how do we pronounce that, um, Rich? Um, you're our pronunciation expert for oh, oh. <laughs> Scandinavian sounding it's, 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 it's sounds like <laughs> slurgy. 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 Cludgy. That's later. The clergy. <laughs> Um, anything way. else we spotted in the um, in the title sequence there? There was, um, it, it was it seemed to be mostly clips from the 1975 FA Cup final, which let's say West Ham were in, and I'm happy to say won against Fulham. Um, but there was bits and pieces of other things. Do we notice the referee shot in that title sequence? There was a referee. There was a referee doing a funny run. He sort of ran like with his hands, like he was trying to sprint, but was like failing to do so very well. Yes, actually, I did because I made the note: fat bald yes. ref legging it. <laughs> <laughs> See, luckily, I, I had that save for the ref for the Chelsea game. Yes, because I thought it was the same ref. Yeah. It was the same oh, there ref. We go. You're That's absolutely why. right. <laughs> Roger Kirkpatrick, his name is. Um, we'll be talking more about him shortly. Yes, that's right. Yes, he was kind of a bit of a character back then because of, because of the way he ran. He sort of had this odd, like, I'm trying to sprint even though my body won't let me kind of um, gait, gait, stride. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> anyway. Um, yes. So there we go. And then we get into the program and um, and there there is your man, Brian Moore, our presenter for, for the big match. Um, he's uh, sat in front of a large white and yellow striped sign bearing the name of the program and the circular ITV sport logo, which is uh, around for many years. Classic, classic logo that. Um, on the desk in front of him, we see a microphone that's been poked through a hole. Uh, Moore's notes on pink and white paper and what appears to be a pipe. And my research, um, which I've been undertaking in the last 24 hours, um, has confirmed that he often would present the program with his pipe on the desk. <laughs> so it has that for sort of uh, go-ahead presenting. Was, um, it, was it a crack pipe? <laughs> it's the only thing well, to get no, him through 70s football. <laughs> I think you're getting him confused with Frank Boff. <laughs> um, how old do we think um, Roger, uh, Roger Moore? <laughs> oh, dear. I've got Roger Kirkpatrick on my notes here, and I've got the two <laughs> names gloriously mixed up there. How do, how old do we think Brian Moore was in this episode? Well, he looks about in his 50s, but I'd say he's probably like 38 or something. 
Because mm. I'm trying Which to think, end? like, I, I remember, I mean, he retired, was it after the 98 World yeah. Cup? I think it was around that time. So I guess if we're talking sort of 20 plus years, I, I'd go for 41, 42. He was 43. Oof. Very close. We'll give you the points. Very um, well done to you. <laughs> Yes, he's wearing a a grey jacket, white shirt, and black tie with white polka dots all over it. Um, How well do we regard Brian Moore, chaps? Is he um, a a commentator and presenter that we remember fondly, or not one of your favourites? What's your What's your views? I mean, as as a commentator, I I was quite fond of him. I I never really had a lot of experience of him presenting, so actually, you know, going back and watching the commentator presenting was a bit of a novelty for this because I'm so used to him, especially when I was getting into football in the eighties and he was commenting on the big match when ITV would have what six or seven games a season on a, on a Sunday afternoon. But um, I mean, he was always kind of there, you know, to use that old cliche there or thereabouts. I mean, I always was more fond of, of Motson or Davis being the, the BBC side, but he was always, you know, in that sort of 10 years or so from the late 80s through to the 98 World Cup. It was, you know, hearing him was a constant and it was a nice, reassuring thing. So it was nice to, you know, you didn't actually see him all that much. So actually mm. seeing him behind the desk doing the presenting duties was a, it was a nice change for me anyway. Mm. I'd echo what Rich said because, uh, I, I, yeah, I didn't really sort of see him much. But I liked him as a presenter. He's got a very sort of calming voice except later when he gets quite angry about some uh, some penalty issues <laughs> he just go off on a bit of a things. rant but even then it's a very contained rant you could actually sort of rant that you could sort of stick on an asmr sort of thing and just go to sleep <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. i i liked brian moore i thought he was terrific he's certainly one of my sort of top two favorite um uh, commentators really and and as you say a very calming presence good tone of voice and everything um, yeah, I thought he was he was he was terrific. I thought Brian Moore. Um, let's uh, let's boot up the old IBM fifty one hundred and see what information I get here about Brian Moore. Um, Brian Baden Moore, born on the twenty eighth of February nineteen thirty two. He started out as a sub editor for a sports magazine in nineteen fifty four before working for the Times in London. Four years later, in nineteen sixty one, he moved to BBC Radio and he was one of three men who commentated on the nineteen sixty six World Cup final for the network. Moore was behind the mic when Jeff Hurst's shot hit the underside of the crossbar and crossed the line to give England a one-all lead after 78 minutes. In 1968, uh, Moore became one of the faces of ITV Sport when London Weekend Television launched and was a co-presenter of the big match with Jimmy Hill during the first few years of its life. Uh, When Hill left to present the BBC's Match of the Day in 1972, Moore continued to present the big match on his own, while also covering just about every important match and competition as ITV's number one commentator. As well as the big match, Moore also presented On the Ball, a magazine show that formed part of ITV's World of Sport programme on Saturday afternoons, and also presented a short series of programmes called Brian Moore Meets, in which he interviewed Kevin Keegan, Nicky Lauda, Sevi Ballesteros, and Bjorn Borg. Anybody seen any of those? No. I have a vague recollection of seeing a bit of that when I was young, actually. It was quite interesting. It was just sort of somebody clearly said to him, like, you know, ever wanted to interview sports people that you like? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, we'll write four down on the list and we'll, we'll, we'll plan that series. And off he went and interviewed those people. 
Um, he was also the regular presenter of Midweek Sports Special, ITV's answer to Sports Night, and he also fronted Who's the Greatest, in which two celebrities tried every week to convince a jury of members of the public that their favourite sports person was better than the one supported by the other celebrity. Have either of you seen that? No. I have heard of it. I, I very yeah. vaguely remember it being a kind of. I can't remember who would have been on it, but I just I remember having read about the format, and I'm trying to think now. You know, if they tried to do something like that, it would literally be two people shouting over each other to a crowd of baying, <laughs> whatever, trying to decide who's greatest between this person most of you have never heard of and this person too, and probably aided by the only footage they could find, which they don't have yeah. rights to, which is probably off YouTube. And it, it would all be influence, uh, YouTubers and influencers, influencers oh, on, on the panel. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Um, there is actually one episode on YouTube, um, which you may want to go uh, watch at some point. Basically, on that particular episode, you had... Um, it was quite low budget. I actually remember seeing it when I was a kid. Uh, it was like a sort of Monday night, sort of 8.30 in the, in the evening sort of filler kind of program. Quite an interesting format, but it was done very much on the cheap, like one of the smallest studios, I think, in Thames TV. And uh, you had Brian Moore, who was like the judge in this kind of courtroom scenario. You had your jury of members of the public. And then you had the two celebs. And on the YouTube clip that's there, uh, one of them is Ted Rogers of 321 fame. Uh, he came on to advocate that uh, Jimmy Greaves was the greatest goal scorer of all time. And uh, he was up against Stan Baldman, who was advocating for Ian Rush. Um, and so basically, they would both sort of speak to the, um, in, they'd take their turns speaking to the jury and sort of saying, well, this is why Jimmy Greaves is, uh, is the greatest goal scorer of all time. And then he, you would see video clips and so on. And then he'd bring on a, a celebrity pal who would happen to agree with him. And then the other guy would come on, he'd say his bit. And it was all about trying to convince the jury that, um, that your your choice was better than the other celebs' choice. It's uh, yeah, it was good, but it was very much done on the cheap. Did Stan um, Boardman's um, arguments include bits about Germans and fuckers? <laughs> More than likely, yes. <laughs> chip he shops. may have referred to chip shops. <laughs> <laughs> he may have referred to Ian Rush as a clever fucker. <laughs> yes, all words of that nature. Um, Yes, as, uh, as highly competent a presenter as he was a commentator, Brian Moore was one of Britain's best-loved football broadcasters. He retired after commentating on the 1998 World Cup finals and died in 2001 at the age of 68 on the same day as England's 5-1 win over Germany during World Cup 2002 qualifying. I remember that because it was such a joyous day and then I heard about that after the match and thought, oh, oh, that's a downer. Uh, shame. Much missed Brian Moore. Anyway... Brian Moore quickly starts off by telling us that we're going to see highlights from three games, starting with the second division match between Chelsea and Bolton Wanderers, and then the first division games between Stoke and Aston Villa and Everton and Ipswich. We're also promised a look at this week's batch of viewers' letters and a chance to idly speculate as to whether Luton Town's Peter Anderson was about to sign for Royal Antwerp. Spoiler alert, he did. Moore then introduces the first match, Chelsea versus Bolton. And he tells us of the home side's financial woes. Well, would you believe it? Chelsea have gone and built a new stand at Stamford Bridge, but only managed to fill a third of it with supporters. Worse still, one whole end of the ground was virtually empty. I don't know, you tell the youth of 1975 that their team will be European champions 46 years hence, and they don't want to know. Still, chin up, 
20,000 people managed to cram into the shed end for this match and all of them got to hear The Liquidator, the magnificent tune by the Harry J All-Stars, which is still played at Chelsea prior to kick-off to this very day, not to mention a number of other football grounds around the UK. Sadly, it was difficult to hear much of it on this episode of The Big Match because Brian Moore was too busy telling us how potless Chelsea were. Um, Gents, the sight of a very shabby-looking Stamford Bridge. Uh, First impressions... Glorious, wasn't it? It's um, <laughs> it's warm it, it was nice in in a kind of warming way that I always remember from the eighties the goals behind the stands at Stamford Bridge, and mm. to see them albeit in a slightly different position here, they were behind one of the corner flags on the far side, and it's just like little things like that just made you think, oh yeah, that was a thing where they'd put cars <laughs> there and hope they wouldn't have the windows put in if they were trying to flog them. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this this was normal. I mean, this was about what eight, seven or eight years before Ken Bates bought them for a pound. So we're mm. looking at maybe ten years before he was talking about electrifying fences to keep people in. But I think the problem was was trying to get them in in the first place. It's, um, <laughs> before you can electrocute them. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting again. Like they they focusing on that. This is the good thing about this particular episode. They're focusing on a stadium that most people have seen so many times in the current day and looking mm. at it back then and what you know an awful place it would have been to spend an afternoon and probably paying oh a fair amount of money to sit in somewhere where you know the, most of the the ends behind the goal would have been glorified urinals <laughs> well, in essence yes very it's just it doesn't even bear any resemblance to you know modern day chelsea obviously but um well, I just remember it was quite distinctive ground because it was so spacious. You know, the big sort of track around the outside and everything. I mean, the the thing. I mean, I made the note that it's just basically a shithole because it was. Uh, but the, <laughs> the thing that I liked was the fact they were mentioning about the fact that they just spent that stupid amount of money on that brand new triple decker stand. But what I found really bizarre was they seated it in brown seats, like not blue but brown. I mean, it was like. I mean, like, I know the 70s was considered quite drab, but did someone steal all the colour out of the 70s or something? Like, why would you put brown seats in a brand new stand? Because, I mean, it, it didn't help that it was obviously like a December afternoon, so it was quite dark anyway. But it just, I mean, it just made it look really awful. It, it looked like it was about 20 years old, just after it had been built. So, ugh. <laughs> And the cladding on the side really didn't age well either. I remember by the <laughs> late 80s, it just looked like so rusty. <laughs> but the brown seats, it was the 70s. Everything was brown in the 70s. Exactly. It's just, <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like there was no actual colour in the 70s, just brown. Brown and orange <laughs> later on when disco came along. <laughs> um, we uh, we get to see the team lineups for for Chelsea and Bolton Wanderers. Uh, which players leapt off the screen, gents, when we, uh, when we got to see those? I'll go first. None. Um, I, I basically for this <laughs> didn't recognise anyone for this entire episode, um, other than Droy, because I recognised the name Droy, and I thought Mickey, Mickey Droy. That was a bad. Uh, but yeah, I just I, I had very little interest in any of the football in this entire episode. I, it was everything else around it that was interesting to me. And actually, one thing I wanted to say was I forgot to mention earlier, so we can splice this in. Um, the LWT logo at the very start. Yes. It, so when I was a kid. I'm sure the LWT logo did actually have a, the downstroke of the T in it. Um, and I, I remember that because I remember thinking how... Because the LWT logo used to come in like a sort of ribbon and sort of flow yes. along. <clears throat> and this like version... Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I remember it being. Um, and uh, 
And this one didn't have the downstroke of the T, which kind of made sense because the river wouldn't flow off unless there was a tributary there, you know. And it used to bug me when I was a kid that it did have the downstroke of the T because that appeared out of nowhere. It didn't flow like the rest of the river. Um, and so I was amazed that it didn't just didn't have one in this. Um, and that's the important bits that I memorised for this match. <laughs> I, I can speak as a as a, uh, a TV nostalgia nerd. Um, I can tell you that up until sort, I think it was about seventy eight, that logo that you saw was the one that was used. And then in about seventy eight, they changed it so that after the ribbon came in, then it transmogrified into the actual letters LWT, which would have had the the downward bit for the T. Uh, so that came late, Casey. Yes, by the time I was sentient and watching television. <laughs> God, I really need to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we've got Mickey Droy for Chelsea good spot there well done lovely <laughs> well done to you Mickey Droy <laughs> a cuddly toy they rhymed don't they you get for nothing for a rhyme <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh, Rich N who did you spot if anybody <laughs> um, well weirdly I, I used to go to school with Mickey Droy's son so did you um, yeah which was a, a random, that was the only that was the first kind time i was aware of his existence and and what he did but wow seeing some of the names in here kind of reminds you that we're on the cusp of two eras really mm. where you had chelsea who four years before i think had won the cup winners cup and beaten real madrid and they're now in the second division so you still mm. got harris bonetti playing for him but you've also got if you look forward to an era that we're probably more familiar with, they've got Ray Wilkins, you've got Pete, Peter Reed playing for Bolton, mm. you know, so we're kind of looking 10 years into the future for those. And it was just weird sort of seeing that kind of, you know, you see these whole stories now about players or so they've played with people from certain eras. And the fact that Harris was playing with Ray Wilkins, who was playing <laughs> into the 2000s and Peter Reed, mm. you know, who went on to sort of, far greater things than the second division with Bolton um, but also a, a young uh, I don't think he had a moustache at Sam Allardyce at number yes. 6 for Bolton yeah uh, absolutely yeah this is very much a kind of um, a, a crossroads um, where we're sort of about to see the young striding talent of the uh, of the 1980s uh, appearing on the horizon yes um, yeah for Chelsea yes Ray Butch Wilkins uh, not his middle name, uh, as you may be thinking. That was his nickname. Uh, he was 19 at this point in, in this game. Um, ironically, made his England debut in the same game as Jimmy Rimmer, which was mentioned, who who was mentioned in the first episode of uh, Football Attic Rewind. He was in the same game there, the uh, the friendly against Italy in the 1976 Bicentennial Cup match at the Yankee Stadium in New York. Um, he ended up top scorer for Chelsea this season. And um, yeah, as you said there, Rich Rich N, uh, Chelsea back in the second division for the first time in 13 years. Uh, Peter Bonetti, former England goalkeeper, largely blamed for Alf Ramsey's team being knocked out of the 1970 World Cup when Gordon Banks got a touch of the earth of kits. Uh, <laughs> Bolton, um, they had Sam Allardyce. Uh, Sam Allardyce and Peter Reid, both 21 in this game. Not so big Sam, uh, as I'm sort of got in my notes here. Uh, he, he played for eight clubs during his career, including Coventry City. Uh, he also managed, at time of recording at least, 11 clubs, including my own West Ham. Still the only man to achieve a 100% win ratio as manager of the England team. 
Peter Reid. Um, this was his second season in his playing career. He ended up playing for Everton, Man City, QPR, amongst others, and uh, played for England 13 times, including appearances at the 1986 World Cup in Mexico. Like Allardyce, he also managed Coventry City, as well as Man City, Sunderland, Leeds, and Thailand, amongst others. Um, so... Anyway, we the, you know the match begins. I guess we'll be talking a little bit about what happened in the match, but that's not our main focus. As one, we mentioned sorry, before. Chris. One one last Go thing on. I wanted to mention about the team lineups was that it was this was obviously before computer graphics, so yes. the it was written on an OHP slide just stuck over the, the sort of the main screen, <laughs> yes. and that just made me think. I don't know about you, but all the OHP slides in my school when I was at primary school were orange. Why was that? Orange. Why were they orange? Yeah, hmm. maybe it was just my school. Well, they slightly slightly tinted orange. Well, yeah. I just I remember we had orange. Ours was ours were transparent. I think we had a couple of tinted ones. Well, yeah, I mean, ours were, ours were transparent. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been much good. That's called orange paper. <laughs> yeah, not not tinted. Ours were. Yeah, I just remember ours being distinctly orange and. I assumed all OHPs, as you do when you're a kid, anything you experience, you assume that's the the way of the world. So maybe we just had a, a cheap deal on some some knockoff, you know, fire damaged OHP slides. <laughs> Came from Alan Partridge. <laughs> My only reference for OHP stuff was when I was in infant school, and we used to like you'd have assembly at the start of every day, and you sit cross legged on the floor. And um, after the headmistress had said her bit, then we used to have to sing a hymn, yeah. uh, a randomly chosen, and then they'd put the words up on the on the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great excitement. She pressed the button and, and illuminated on the on the wall. It would be. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> hey, men. Uh, so um, yeah, we'll we'll come on to the match shortly, but of course we have to deal with the minutiae. That's what we're here for. So um, let's start off with the kits. Uh, gents, um, Chelsea in an Umbro kit, Bolton in a, in a Buckter kit. Either of those two, which which would we go for as our favourite out of those two? Which would you rather worn if you were a player? Well, both of them would have been made out of really horrible material. Uh, both of them had had collars that you could fly with. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, don't <clears throat> again. This sort of this, it's in this period where kits aren't really designed much you know there's not mm. really much thought that's been put into it because kits aren't a big thing at this point um i mean chelsea's had nice white trim in it bolton's had that horrible sort of inset v which i've never really got on with um so i'd probably go for the chelsea kit myself and it's blue so you know fair enough i think i wasn't sure it's was hard to remember that um chelsea actually had the white socks I was associated with when, I think it was when Rude Hullett became their manager at the end of the 90s, he made a big thing about taking Chelsea back to White Sox because I think he associated with his teams that he played well with and it was, there was some point around it was easier to identify your teammates. And of course this back then being the Football League would have forced, I, I'd imagine that Bolton probably would have played in all white but they had to wear red socks because of a colour clash. Yes, that's it, exactly. Yes, this was a Bolton variation uh, kit, you might say. They normally wore white, navy blue, white, and uh, in order to not clash with Chelsea, they wore white, white, red in this one. Quite a fetching look, I thought. I, that's the one I'd go for. I think it was quite a rakish look. Don't see too many teams in white, white, red these days. Yes, except, um, except England occasionally, except England, know, causing everyone to lose their minds. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the white 
the wide white winged collar on the on the Chelsea shirt. That was quite a quite a look. A bit too big for my liking, but there we are. Um, we don't know what the ball was. It's difficult to tell. There's no sort of particularly distinctive markings because this was 1975, but it was probably a ball made by Minerva because I think they used to make the sort of bog standard footballs back in the day. Um, so not much to be gleaned from that. Uh, and now, of course, we come to the moment where we've all been looking forward to, and that is uh, to identify some of the pitch side advertising <laughs> boards. Our guest, Rich Nelson, maybe you'd like to start off by uh, plucking one from your list. If you, <laughs> I'm presuming you have a list. Um, I, I have a couple, and I just find it strange to go back to this time when uh, football were advertising movies, as in go see, yes. don't don't miss. And um, and of course the the main one that I think we've all we've referenced already was uh, Emmanuel, which I then had to go and see. Would it have been that? Yes, yes, it was. Yes. I had to, yeah, you know, it would have been that time. And and there was also one along the side for uh, Tommy as well. The other yes. movie. So oh, it was, yeah, um, Tommy. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, and it was just kind of strange that you know so, sometimes films and movies in that way don't go and i remember from one of your podcasts from years ago when you talked about i think it was atletico madrid had kits over a season that had different yeah, movies sponsoring them, like spider-man, yeah, and, spider-man and hitch and things like that whereas <laughs> back in those these days it was on the hoardings and it was just so strange that and it was so i guess typically mid 70s that they would be advertising essentially soft porn I'd, I'd imagine on on the other side there'd be something like Readers Wives Twelve, but it was just um, <laughs> yeah, it was um, such a strange kind of thing to think like you know the, the, I know they were trying to make this kind of stuff fairly mainstream, but you know with the benefit of hindsight, looking back to nineteen seventy five, they're basically advertising pornography next to the pitch. Well, it was a special... I was going to say it was you can tell the seventies was still very much when it was only blokes that went to football. Yeah. Um, and when I spotted one behind the goal as well, which was I didn't realise what it was until I looked it up, which was Listomania or yes. Listomania, which Listomania. is a Ken Russell film. Uh Correct. composers Franz Liszt, Roger Daltrey, uh, and Richard Wagner, Paul Nicholas. I mean there's your two classic <laughs> sort of seventies I mean Paul Nicholas, well oh God. Uh live wildly surrounded by groupies and mistresses. I mean it's a Ken Russell film, isn't it? So well, it's gonna be T and A saying <laughs> yes, um, ironic really that you've got not just two films on the advertising board, but both of them are Ken Russell films star- starring Roger Daltrey. There's some definite money changing hands there, I'd say. Um, yeah, um, so you've got those two. You've got Don't Miss Emmanuel. I think this was specifically a Chelsea thing because I don't remember seeing, even on old archive footage and stuff that I've seen down the years, I don't remember seeing any other ground really promoting films not to any great extent. It was a very, a, very much a Chelsea thing. I wonder if Ken um, Russell's a Chelsea fan. He probably was. Mm. Who was the player? There was a Chelsea player who was going out with Raquel Welsh. It, um, at some point. Was it? Um, well, I don't know about mm. going out with, but there was in. I think it was in an earlier uh, episode of the big match from a couple of years before. She was over in the UK to promote a film, and mm. Jimmy Hill stepped in to sort of say, "Let me show you around Chelsea Football Club." You know the way you would <laughs> when you've got a. What was it? There was a Chelsea player who I think that I heard an interview with sort of dated her very briefly. Oh, I need to have a look. Yeah, definitely. But um, <laughs> I don't wonder if that that was a kind of Hollywood link oh, to Chelsea. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, got them a secured deal for some. Dodgy films. Um, there was a. I, I saw an advertising board that said "bull waste disposal." Yeah, um, I which I that one. I don't, I don't know if that was a, like a euphemism for bullshit. Presumably, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> um, the the classic uh, Winfield only at Woolworth. Uh, 
I didn't realise, I remember seeing the names Winfield and Woolworth a lot when I was a kid, and I didn't realise Winfield was the name of the clothing brand um, that, 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 like, Woolworths sold clothing, and it had Winfield as the sort of brand name, it was their brand name. A bit like, is it Georgia Asda? I'm trying to remember now from my, yes, going back. Um, Did you see the one that said DD for you and you and you and Mm. you and you too? Did you see that one? Yeah, I, did, I had no idea what it referenced. I thought it was a bit early ah. for a U2 album. <laughs> that was a, an advert for Double Diamond, hence the DD bit at the start. Oh. And it was just, a, I think it was like tying in with a TV commercial. So it was like for you and you and you too. But um, yeah, I was thinking, were you two around at that time? I don't think they were. The only thing uh, I can recall with for you and you is a theme tune for something, some <laughs> kids' program. What was, was that? Um, <laughs> Jim will fix it. Oh, you remember why I've repressed that memory. <laughs> yeah, I think I really hope he doesn't work out which one this is. <laughs> oh, the innocence of youth, eh? What, what could it be? Oh, shit, yeah. Oh, God, we've done it again. Right, I also noticed Beans Means Hines, which yes. is obviously a classic. Uh, National Panasonic, which is interesting. Why National mm. Panasonic? Was Panasonic originally a local thing? You know, um, yes, I noticed the bull waist, I suppose, as well. I thought that was, that was a lovely touch, a lovely touch. Uh, and Rumbelows, <laughs> the old classic. Yeah, it was very much a time for promoting um, sort of basically TV hire shops. So you had Panasonic, uh, not Panasonic, sorry, uh, you had uh, like Vision Hire and, um, you know, all these kind of radio rentals. Radio rentals. Yeah. Some of those crop up in the other games we're going to be coming on to. Um, and the only other one I had written down was Unipart, which was another one that cropped up a lot in oh, that yeah. era, which is like the forerunner of um, uh, Halfords, basically, I suppose you could say. Yes. Um, and then we come on to the referee. Now, the aforementioned Roger Whitworth Kirkpatrick of Leicester. Uh, we saw him in the opening titles, um, had a comedy stride, as I was saying before. Uh, he was known to many players at this time as Mr. Pickwick due to his portly profile and his mutton-chop sideburns. Um, he was something of a strict disciplinarian, apparently, but he officiated the game with a smile on his face, which earned him the respect of many of the players at the time. Although it was said that he was a- actually able to run faster backwards than he could forwards, which was uh, quite a novelty. Um, often was seen he... during matches sort of running backwards. Was he the mighty atom in the roly-poly? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's possible. Again, we must fact-check. On, on the subject of fact-checks, Rich Nelson, I understand you have an update for us on the Raquel Welsh story. Um, yeah, apparently it was Peter Osgood. So, Peter um, Osgood, he's a sly one, isn't he? Yeah, I'm thinking it was uh, 19... It's slightly earlier, so 1972. Apparently, uh, yeah, she was uh, had a, a brief fling with Peter Osgood. And uh, there was an interview with him on... I mean, it's a BBC interview with him a couple of years ago where it, where it came up. and um, yeah, it was very, <laughs> So to speak. Yeah, well, yeah, it's all very strange, <laughs> but um, yeah. And one thing I did notice, and slightly on a similar subject, when just as they were panning the crowd before the game kicked off, and Brian Moore, as the camera lingered on a couple of attractive women, was a oh, you always get a touch of class at Chelsea, which in the <laughs> yes. in the seventies you really didn't. But of course, <laughs> yeah, it was it was like watching the Brazilian fans <clears throat> at a, a World Cup. <laughs> Yeah, they've, they've managed to find the only two women in the stadium and uh, just so it happened to coincide with that turn of phrase. Yes, indeed. It's a shame it uh, wasn't from the north because then almost certainly those women would have had headscarves and rollers. 
<laughs> it As I believe, look alike. Yes, there was the fashion in the north. <laughs> so, in introducing the game, uh, yes, Moore picks out a couple of uh, lively talents in the crowd. Uh, as we just mentioned, and um, and Chelsea kickoff. Did we spot how Chelsea kicked the match off? Uh, was it a a remote control car bringing the ball to the centre circle? <laughs> it was an Inver car. Uh, no, it was, <laughs> um, no, it was um, basically um, Teddy Maybank of Chelsea flipped the ball up to his teammate Colin Hutchinson, who had to hastily sort of control it rather than just like kicking the ball to him. Actually, flipped it up head high and. Uh, Yes, Brian Moore referred to that as an unorthodox start to the game, which is about right, I'd say. Um, and what other things did we spot during the course of the game that, uh, that caught our eye? I, I mentioned the, the Inver cars, which we've mentioned before, the invalid carriages, which were there, are very much a fixture at, uh, at Chelsea f- <coughs> down the years. Um, what else did we see? Well, I noticed there were more Inver cars than advertising hoardings. <laughs> and there's an absolute load of them. I think, a, actually, to use a term that would have been the collective noun for uh, beautiful ladies, there was a bevy of Inver cars. <laughs> I was trying to count them at one point. I just couldn't, because there were so many, they just went off the side of the screen. There must have been about like 50 of them in total or something. Like You could only ever see about six at a time. I mean, the other, the other things I mainly noticed was that we, we've talked about the ref, but I love the fact that he just never seemed to move. He bossed it from the <laughs> middle. It's just like, took up residence in the sort of in between, halfway between the centre circle and the penalty spot, stood there and just basically bossed it from there, really. <laughs> it's like, yeah. why run when you don't have to? An, an economy of movement. It Although, was funny when you, when you watch, uh, after you've watched the whole programme and you see how much screen time was given to this game. And then yes. they squeezed in the Ipswich Everton game at the end, which had six goals in it. Yeah. And this one was dissected, so, you know, even by modern standards, the sort of thing you'd get Carragher and Neville ripping apart afterwards, you know, the, everything with the, the penalty. But then um, I guess they, they obviously decided this was the main game and this was the one they had the most of the cameras at. So we need to show it come what may, even if it was Division 2. Well, that surprised me in itself. Sorry, I was going to say, Chris, that yeah. surprised me in itself because I had no idea, obviously, of, of being in the mid-70s of which teams were in which division at the time. And he suddenly said Bolton looking good for promotion. I was like, oh, hang on. So this is a second division match. Yes. It's like, okay. <laughs> but this was um, this was a running gag, I think, on I certainly mentioned at least on one occasion on um, Fantasy Football League when that all kicked off, Badil and Skinner. Um, I can distinctly remember them sort of making the observation of, like on the big match Brian Moore would always sort of say, and uh, on today's programme, we've got Manchester United versus Liverpool coming up, and we've got, uh, you know, Leeds United against Man City, uh, but we're starting off with Brentford against Orient in Division 3, you know, like because it was the <laughs> London match, like they, it was a London-based programme, so they'd get the London game in first, and, and oh, this is a prime gracious. example of what they were saying. But, that, but that's another weird thing, isn't it? It's, it's, you forget how regionalised TV was back then. Yes. I mean, obviously, you know, all the franchises, it was London weekend television, but because you got so used to seeing all those logos, like Thames television for Rainbow and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> you got used to seeing all these logos all the time. So you forget how many regional variations there were. I mean, it's like if you ever look back on a sort of TV Times at the time or something, and it will say like, you know, regional variations. There's about like eight different like regions and all, you know, some showing random weird things like Gus Honeybun or something. <laughs> I used to think As London was a programme until I realised that it was just... <laughs> I remember finding that weird when we... Because we, we used to spend a lot of our summer holidays in Scotland, where my family from, and having grown up in London, and all of a sudden the channel, it's not 
LW Tier Weekend is Borders. Yes. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, or Grampian. <laughs> what, what is all this? Why is Take take the High Road on every single second of the day? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, um, I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I used, to, I used to watch Country Practice quite avidly during the 90s. And even then, the, the different regions had, like, I mean, like, I think Central was about five years behind everyone else. And they're all on at different times. So even in the, like, the sort of mid to late 90s, the, the sort of daytime TV schedule was just all over the shop. Yes. Crazy, crazy times, man. Crazy times. You know, the, I mean, the kids are missing out on this now because you used to just get such a wonderful, perverse thrill of seeing another TV stations. I didn't when you were on holiday. It was, it was, but that was wonderful. I tell you what, though, actually, BBC have still not managed to solve this problem for the HD channel um, because <coughs> so on the BBC uh, on on the satellite you have BBC Midlands as like your main number one. Um, sort of slot because if you're in the Midlands that's what it is which means that if you actually have BBC if you go to BBC One HD it's a centralised thing so when it comes to local news they can't show it so for 10 minutes you get a load of BBC idents and the amount of times when I was um, when I was on furlough last year and also the year before when I was trying to find a job you just sit there, you get sucked in, and you're just sort of watching these idents for 10 minutes, and it's like dogs barking, and people going surfing, and like, um, what's it called? Steel drum playing, and then some people dancing to some sort of 1930s stuff. And you get, and it rotates. These clips last about 30 seconds, and then it goes to the next one. There's about five of them, and they just mm. rotate endlessly for like 10 minutes until the, the regional news is finished on, on the regional channel, and they can start rebroadcasting the main channel on the HD again. It's like, and you just sort of sit there hypnotized by these things, and they're all red as well. Like, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, oh man, I, th- I think of, uh, I think it's melted my brain. <laughs> but, but the thing is now, you've it, again, it's like the joys at the other side, the flip side of that, is that you've got all the regional channels are there tucked away next yes. to Babe Station and all that. Where, <laughs> you know, the, the, there was a recent, was it um, the Football Nation, the documentary about the Welsh football, and that was yeah. only broadcast on BBC Wales. Um, and it well, was, they had you know, a brilliant one about Dundee United as well. Um, yeah. um, about the when they got into the UEFA Cup final, uh, was it UEFA Cup? Yeah, it was a Cup, yeah. Cup. Can't remember. In '87, that was on BBC Alba. Um, but of course, on BBC Scotland, you get the you get um, Scottish football. So I've watched the Scottish Cup for the last few years. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like the, this stuff's heavily marketed. Oh, you can watch it on iPlayer. And it's like, well, I, I want to watch it on. You know, the hmm. telly or whatever, but you, TV. you have yeah. to actually go to BBC Wales, which is on channel a thousand four seven eight, recorded from there. Yeah, and it's, I mean it's it's a, a benefit and a hindrance. <laughs> First world problems. Hmm. Um, what other stuff did we spot during this game? I, I noticed see on this episode, not just in this game, but um, it seems to be at this point in time. Uh, ball boys were very much a, a thing to have if you were running a football club and you had to give them specifically coloured and designed tracksuits to wear to make it all kind of part of your you know, professionalism and everything. And in the case of this uh, Chelsea game, the, the ball boys were wearing a very sort of rudimentary sort of grey tracksuit, um, two-piece tracksuit. It had Chelsea FC emblazoned on the back. Sort of professional looking, but a bit drab for, for even for 1975, I think. Um, and also, uh, did we see the track suits that were being worn by the Bolton players when they were warming up? There was a logo on on there. This is really nerdy detail, I realise, but... Oh, no, I don't, no, I don't. It was a bit blurry, 
but I think it was a word a word mark and it said bar b a double r and if that is the case and I'm pretty sure it is that's the company that had just started making Tizer back in 1975 and would go on Oof. to make Iron Brew so um, I think that's the company who are sponsoring Bolton's tracksuits there's a phrase you didn't think you'd ever say on a podcast <laughs> um uh, what else? Oh, yeah. I spotted uh, the Bolton keeper, Barry Siddle. He was wearing these kind of green gloves. Now, this was a bit early for goalkeeper gloves, and I'm willing to bet pound to a penny there was no grip on those gloves. I think they were probably gloves that his wife had knitted or his wife's mum had knitted for, for his birthday or something because they just looked very sort of... They, they, they weren't Sondicos. That's all I was saying. Um one thing that sort of chimed in with a later game as well, I noticed, is the position of the camera in this game, in that when the players ran out onto the field, you noticed that actually the the entrance to the stadium, for the players at least, sorry, the entrance to the pitch, was not on the centre circle line. It was sort of off-centre. And this was something that would crop up in a later game as well. So there was, there was a bit of off-centre action going on back then. Um, and also just... Um, Generally, as I think you said earlier on, Rich N, it was just generally really dark and gloomy. I mean, I know it was December in Britain, but <laughs> what was going on with the floodlights at Stamford Bridge? Weren't they working? Well, that's one thing I noticed. They the players only had one shadow in one direction, which suggests well, they that, only had one explain. floodlight, which was just bizarre. <laughs> I also did notice as well, in the second half, they turned the lights on in the main stand, which hmm. made it now like a giant space heater. Because <laughs> all this sort of orange light was flooding out through the translucent panels at the top. Um, um, one other thing I did notice was the the actual goals. Um, they were really quite deep. The, um, yes. the you know they they were proper. They went back. I think I mean the goals were eight foot high. They, these looked like they went back ten feet. So the ball would have to travel a fair old distance to nestle in the bottom corner. But <laughs> it was f- full frames and everything. It was a yeah, nice change from what we've got now. Indeed. You're speaking to a West Ham fan, and for years we used to have the narrowest, most shallowest goal nets in in football history. They were about like 20 centimetres deep. I I don't know what that was all about, but if the ball hit the back stanchion, it would fly straight back out again. You need a bit of depth in these nets, I always say sometimes. Um, Anyway... Uh, quick match summary of this one. So Alan Waldron of Bolton hit a long-range shot, came back off the left post. Ian Greaves of Bolton slotted the ball home from the rebound. That put Bolton 1-0 up. Uh, Chelsea attacked furiously in the second half to no great effect, unfortunately. Mickey Droy, the aforementioned Mickey Droy, got uh, booked for dissent. Uh, Bolton's Ian Watmore headed against the post. And Chelsea got a penalty for a handball on the line with four minutes to go. Up stepped Ray Butch Wilkins to take the penalty, and Barry Siddle saved it. Brian Moore told us that um, Ray Wilkins missed a penalty on TV recently against Fulham in the Anglo-Scottish. There's a sort of uh, throwback to the previous podcast against Rich J, where you mentioned about Coventry being in the Anglo-Scottish Cup. It was it was going on back then. Yeah, you, I like the fact he just said the... I did, yeah. I like <laughs> the fact he just said the Anglo-Scottish. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He'll be referring um, it to the as the FA next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the Anglo-Scottish Cup, which replaced the Texaco Cup, which started um, the the Anglo-Scottish Cup started at the beginning of August '75. It featured sixteen English teams and eight Scottish, only one of which Motherwell reached the last four. Did you have to collect tokens to get into that? What was it? <laughs> oh, tokens! Did you yes, have to collect indeed. tokens to get into entrance <laughs> yes. into the Texaco Cup? 
You had to buy five pounds worth of petrol. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, the two-legged final was eventually won by Middlesbrough, 1-0 on aggregate over Fulham in December 1975. Um, the original Texaco Cup tournament was introduced in 1970 as a competition for teams in England, Scotland and Ireland who hadn't qualified for Europe the previous season. So that's where it all stemmed back from. Um. And so we go back to the studio where Brian Moore sums up. Uh, he tells us that Bolton's win moves them up to second place in the table and they're looking a good bet for promotion. But in time-honoured fashion for any presenter, either match of the day or the big match, he was completely wrong. Uh, they did, in fact, miss out on promotion by one point at the season's end. So if ever you hear a presenter predicting anything, you just know they're going to be wrong. <laughs> uh, Brian Moore continues by showing us Bolton's goal again in slow motion and points out that after Alan Waldron's shot hit the post, none of the Chelsea players reacted to the rebound. I thought that was a bit harsh at first, but when you actually look, it's I mean, it's true to say that the Chelsea players were miles away from the ball, but um, it, he's right, actually. <laughs> the Bolton players did react and the Chelsea players didn't, so yep. fair enough. Um, we then get to see the penalty incident again. After Roy Greaves handles the ball on the line, we see the penalty taken by Ray Wilkins. And Moore goes to great lengths to point out that Bolton's keeper, Siddle, should have kept both feet on the ground before the kick was taken, but didn't. The most blatant piece of movement by a goalkeeper I think we've seen for a long time, he says, before laying it on even thicker by telling us that Bolton's Alan Waldron was also inside the penalty area when the kick was taken. Encroachment, he says. Two reasons why the penalty should have been taken again, says Chief Inspector Moore. <laughs> Brian, Brian Moore then sticks a knife in even further by saying it's n- another example of a team being robbed of a point or two, not that the blame should be put on referee Kirkpatrick. It's the whole refereeing system when it comes to supervising penalties, he says, before saying that today's incident encapsulates the reason why 80% of viewers' letters are about infringements that have taken place. All three officials should be checking on the goal line, the goalkeeper, and encroaching players, he says. What did we make of that? That seemed like a bit sort of like... I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was a great <laughs> rant. Um, like yes. I say, it was, you know, it was a very polite rant. But what I found most funny is that his solution was literally that the other linesman should basically come into that half to sort of keep an eye on in the, on encroaching players or on the goal line, one of the two. And it's like, and then he even said that other people have made the point that if they did that, and then the ball was quickly kicked away, they, he wouldn't be able to get back into his own half in time to sort of, you know, sort of officiate that half of the match. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's an insane idea, Brian. Let it go. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it's not that important. I just thought I was thinking the funny thing was that they hardly moved. I mean, like considering how much movement some goalies do or did actually to be fair they've cracked down on it a lot and in the euros they're really cracking down on it mm. but like prior to that i mean like goalies used to jump about six feet forward before yeah. and, and no one gave a toss um and and i just thought you know if if, if only you could have seen what became of it brian you'd have you'd have you'd have wept <laughs> i mean it was a weird thing was it was i mean it was a good save and i really don't think that him being a couple of inches forward off his line Really made that much of a difference. I mean, no, it was an okay, it was no, an okay, pen, it was an okay penalty. But the fact that he saved it and then caught it, you know, at the second attempt, but it, it was just such a strange thing because, of course, then what he's kind of suggesting is what UEFA brought in with the goal mouth officials. Mm. What was that in the, sort of about two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, and they've oh, got yeah. rid of got rid of now. <laughs> but it's um, because one thing I did notice, I think it was was one of the corners that the linesman came in to around the edge of the penalty box. 
Yes, um, yeah. and it's, it was just a, a weird thing that, and I, I, I sent you a, a clip from a Brazilian match last month, where That's a goalkeeper right. saving a penalty was by the six-yard box by the time the penalty was struck, <laughs> and of course saved it. So it was just, you know, like Rich said, as as things have gone on, I mean, you know, it's interesting to moan about this stuff, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think his solution somewhat outweighed the problem. <laughs> Quite yeah, right. Sledgehammer nut scenario. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but what about if the penalty hits the crossbar and goes down the other end, said the officials. Uh, well, there's bugger all chance of that happening, says Moore, so maybe it's time for a change. <laughs> having, having climbed down from his soapbox, Brian Moore thankfully moves us on to the second match in today's programme, which was Stoke City versus Aston Villa. The pictures are from ATV, and the commentator is Hugh Johns. <laughs> This was a match that finished Stoke City 1, Aston Villa 1. Uh, goals from, I think it was Jimmy Greenoff. He scored the, the Stoke goal. And uh, Graydon scored for Aston Villa. We get we don't get to see any team lineups on this one. No mention of the referee. Straight into the game it was. Um, what did we think of this game? Was this um, any better? It was a, we, we get two goals in this game. Um, I'm, I'm guessing in the case of you, Rich, Jay didn't light your candle very much. Uh, I actually made the the, the note. Uh, next match is Stoke versus Who Gives a Fuck. <laughs> so um, I yeah, I didn't really care. The main thing I noticed from it was that the players' shorts all seemed to be inflated. Um, they seemed to be really wide shorts. I don't know what yes. that was all about. Um, Voluminous. Yes, and that the and in terms of the sponsors, which we're bound to come on to. Oh. Um, yes. There were a couple that I, spon- I spotted. Um, now, I know you mentioned there was a definite Scandinavian one there. Yes. There were two, actually. Um, right. Did you spot both of them? Well, I think I know what one of them is going to be, but... but Yeah, well, that was the obvious one, isn't it? Go on, what was that one? Well, excuse, Rich, and I should get my apologies now if I don't pronounce this correctly, because, yeah. But I'm going to... It's Pingvin Lacrids. Was that the one? Um, that's well, the yeah, one. Th- that's... Because I had a look because um, I thought it was finished because in Finland you get pingvini as a kind of ice cream and right. you get licorice ice cream over there. But it's actually Danish. Uh, yes. this, I think these are Danish like licorice sweets. That's yep. right. It is Made a brand by of Tom's. Tom's, yes. Yeah. And, and have also... you been to the... Sorry, go on. No, go on. You go, Chris. <laughs> no, I was going to say, have you been to the Tom's website to look up pingvin lacrids? Um if not, let me just um, share a screen with you, um, basically. Um, I'll show you what, what, it, what you get if you go to their website. Have a look at this. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've seen, <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen that. I've seen that. Yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> brand of licorice. Yeah, I've seen it in the shop. I uh, love it. Mm. Mm. So, so I've actually had some salt licorice sent to me by someone in Sweden. Um, Have you? And Yes, and it was... It's pretty much exactly what you'd imagine. Um, it's <laughs> licorice that's licorice. very salty. <laughs> it's, um, it wasn't that though. Um, but yeah, so there was, so there was indeed pingvin lacrids. <laughs> oh, or if it was finished, it would have been pingvin lacrids, as, um, as uh, Rich N pointed out. Um, the other one I spotted was a Yankee bar, yes. which is actually made by Tom's. Uh, it's Correct. also a Danish chocolate bar. Um, so yeah, not spelled Yankee as in Y A N K E E, but Y A N K I E. So like Anki. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
This is, correct me if I'm wrong, Rich, and I think this is, I mean, I'm not sure what your uh, Danish pop culture uh, information is like, but um, yeah, I think Tom's Yankee Bar, that was basically like a Danish version of a Mars bar, I think. Okay, right, yeah, because I mean, that's the weird thing, isn't it? Like Mars bars in, is it a Mars bar in America is like a Milky Way or, so, or a Babe yeah. Roof and a Milky right. Way is like a Mars bar or something like that. So yeah, these things all kind of translate weirdly, but um yeah, it's, it's just interesting when you see this stuff and you kind of, I assume we had the same as in your last episode when even in 1975, um, Scandinavia would have been a popular sort of export, you know, uh, an import mm. for for British football. So that yes. I guess if they're it's good money well spent for them. Yeah, well, see, this is the this is the point. I mean, we'll come on to the uh, Swedish and Scandinavian uh, advertising boards and everything a bit later on. But anyway, yes, um, that that must be the, the same sort of connection essentially. Um, and I did read somewhere. I think that the Yankee Bar was so called because it was made for American troops during the Second World War, who basically like just bought loads of them and stocked them up for all the for all the troops, and um, that's why they became so popular. And they got called Yankee Bar. Um, going back to Pingvid Lacrids, just to explain that, um, Pingvin is the uh, uh, Danish word for penguin, and Lacrids is the word for licorice. Ping, penguin licorice. There you go. Just thought I'd it's explain penguin that. flavoured licorice. <laughs> no, not not flavoured, no, no. It's just, just licorice flavoured licorice. Taste of um, rotten fish. <laughs> any other advertising boards we saw there? I, I loved the one behind the uh, one of the goals that was for marzipan. And it was almost yes. like advertising marzipan in the way that you'd sort of drink more water, drink Guinness, eat marzipan. It's, it's Anton Berg marzipan, because I managed yes. to sort of see the rest of the thing. And it's still going now. It's kind it of is. like luxury marzipan. But Absolutely. I like the fact that it was next to one for Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just leading up to Christmas, you see. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Get your marzipan in now. Yeah. I was surprised that Anton Berg Marzipan was still made. I thought it was one of those archaic things from years ago. Um, yes, Alka-Seltzer, um, Happy Go Pontin for people like my mum and dad who would have gone to Pontin's holiday camps for their for their holidays. Although in December, I'm not sure that would have been uppermost in their mind, really. But um, Ansel's beer, I think, was near the centre uh, centre line, uh, halfway line, even. Um, yeah. Uh, and and Staffordshire Building Society, which I think eventually merged into the Nationwide Building Society, just in case anybody cares. So uh, yes, there we are. Um, I did find it sorry. I did find it strange that, like you said, they didn't announce any teams. They went straight into it. Yes. And even when I thought I'll have a quick Google and see, it was difficult to see. I think some websites had the the Aston Villa team, but I didn't see the Stoke team. It was only when you looked at Stoke and it was like, you know, Peter Shilton was playing for him because they, they said his name a couple of times. And yeah. then I had to look and see, um, I think Stoke's season that year. And bear in mind, they were the home team. I didn't realize um, Team of the Week's Garth Crooks was at Stoke at the time. I don't think he played yeah. in this game. I think he only played a handful of games that year. But it was just that kind of information that you kind of think. I'm, I know even now, though, they, they don't always go into the teams if they show the highlights, but mm. it, it was just weird if this was a featured match. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought that. I mean, as you say, it's only when you hear a commentator say the name of a player, you go, oh, I didn't know he was playing. Mm. I was going to ask it, which players you um, you spotted on the pitch. And yeah, Peter Shilton in goal for Stoke. He's sort of oft overlooked period playing for Stoke there, but uh, there he was. Anyone else there we spotted? Um, no, not in that game. 
I um, <laughs> no. yeah, it was Shilton was the main one from like kind of again from with that eighty six hat on, but uh, I think Shilton's yeah. performance in this game outweighed his his eighty six performances. That's good. Um, I had um, John Burridge in goal for Villa, the journeyman goalkeeper who played for just about everybody during his career, and um, Alan Hudson playing for Stoke. He was um, uh, yeah one of the best sort of strikers at Chelsea only a year before, and he moved to Stoke. Um, for this particular season that we're watching now. So he he was uh, playing for the other side there. Um, and the kits, I mean, again, fairly rudimentary kits, but um, I quite like the Stoke shirt, sort of red and white with a black collar. It's quite a rakish sort of look, really. Um, other than that, Aston Villa in their light blue shorts, just so they, they didn't have too much of a colour clash for those watching in black and white. Their kit uh, looked a bit more... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go oh, on. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, that their kit looked more modern... Than hmm. the um, than the Stoke kit, I think yes. it was on that cusp of. I mean, it was that Umbro? I think I saw on the kit. Um, Umbro for both, yes. Yeah, but their kit looked like it was kind of moving into the next era of kits, whereas Stoke yes. was very much of its time. Mm. And uh, one for all you kit nerds out there, this was one of two Stoke kits that they had that season. Uh, slightly different collars in both cases. I'll shut up now. Um, right. <laughs> um, other things that were spotted in this match, I again going back to the ball boys, they were wearing these kind of blue sponsored tracksuits with yellow trim. I couldn't see what the sponsor was on the on the. I think it was a local, some local company in the Midlands. I think um, for some reason we get the sort of um, big match logo coming up on the caption whenever they showed a replay, which we didn't get in the in the Chelsea game, which I find odd. Um, but I think they were just putting it up for the non London two non London games that were in there. And of course, no chance of seeing a replica shirt at this sort of time, but plenty of bobble hats and scarves in the uh, in the team colours littered throughout the, uh, the the crowd there. But other than that, um, it was all over and done with, sort of pretty quick, really. As I say, one all. Uh, Ray Graydon scored from close range after John Dean had headed down into the six-yard box. That was one nothing, as uh, Hugh Johns always used to say. Um, Robertson hit the post, but it bounced out for Jimmy Greenoff, and he made it one all. And that was that. And now it's time for your letters, said Brian Moore, who clearly doesn't want to dwell on the second match very much. Uh, the first one, he said, is from a, a young man called John Byrne of 6 Hascombe House, Roehampton, London, SW15. Um, one of the joys of the big match back then, and I'm sure a lot of other TV shows as well, is that they would read out the full address <laughs> in case you wanted to go around and visit the person, presumably. It was the 70s, it was fine. It was. Yeah. And yet, and yet... Jimmy Savile six- was sitting there with a notebook. Right <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> and yet, Six Hascombe House, I don't think exists anymore. I did look it up, because that's the sort of level of research I do. And uh, to my knowledge, it doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, never mind. Um, oh, I know, Roham- I know Roehampton quite well. It's part of the, yes. where, where I used to work, and there's a lot of new estates in that area so right. I imagine this was raised down This, yeah mid-70s has probably been replaced by a, there's a couple of large estates there now yes that's entirely possible um, yeah John Byrne who sent the letter in he's the 10 year old nephew of former Crystal Palace and West Ham player Johnny Byrne he says he's never seen his uncle play and can the big match help well yes because ITV Sport has got access to a ton of newsreel footage some of which shows Johnny Byrne playing for England against Uruguay in 1964, which we get to see. Um, as I say, this is the sort of thing you'd never have got on Match of the Day. This was very much a kind of big match thing. Do we do we like that? Do we want to see this sort of stuff on our t- sort of football re- football highlights shows? Yeah, 
Yeah, I really like it. I think it's. I mean, it's. It's like Rich said. It's. It's a very seventies thing to sort of have letters and and sort of read out the addresses and stuff. But <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. It's, it's. It's kind of a nice touch. It stops the aloofness um, that sort of you know kind of went with these sort of programs. And it's. It's just a bit of fun, really. It's a. Yes. And it's great to look back on, especially with the addresses. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the. I'd just like to point out the second letter. Um, that address does still exist, and it the does. house now has a nice blue door. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've, I had a look at that as well. It's it's uh, just around the corner from the Tesco Express and the Indian Takeaway, just in yes, case anyone wants to. I don't know if Mister Copel still lives there, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, uh, Brian Moore tells us that he's been taken to task by Mister A. H. Capel of uh, sixteen Ferndown Road, Eltham, SE nine. Um, Apparently, Moro has been wrongly calling Steve Coppel Steve Coppel. Mr. Capel says it should be pronounced Coppel, as in hell, to which Brian Moore says to hell it is. And he even went to the trouble of contacting Steve Coppel to ask how he preferred to have his name pronounced. Steve Coppel said Coppel. So that told him. Um, I mean, I love, I mean, just the fact, not just sort of viewer letters, but... (laughs) viewers pedantically pointing out you've mispronounced a correctly pronounced name wrongly it's like twitter existed in 1975 isn't it yes <laughs> slow twitter yeah uh. <laughs> it's, i just love the fact that they read two letters and that's it you know i mean well we know there were another eight all about penalty encroachment so you know <laughs> yeah uh, we're then told about three testimonial games that you might be interested in going to see file under things you don't get on modern day TV anymore. Uh, the first is for Fulham's Alan Slough in light of his long service for Luton Town. Luton are playing an international 11, which is likely to feature George Best, who is, in quotes, due to make another appearance. He will keep turning up to these testimonials, George Best. He's um, just in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> he just happened to be having a few beers. Um, as well as George Best, the International Eleven featured such exotic talents as Bob Wilson, Rodney Marsh, Malcolm McDonald, and half of the Ipswich Town team. I suppose you can't have everything. Um, <laughs> the next testimonial is for Arsenal's Peter Story, where George Best is due to make an appearance. And that's against the Dutch champions, Feyenoord. At least they're not the champions, are they, Feyenoord? A first-class Dutch side, Moore corrects himself. Um and the third one is for Peter Middleton, where his team Plymouth Argyle were due to play Manchester United. And if George Best can head up the M1 a bit sharpish after the Arsenal game, he'll probably be at that one as well. Um, testimony- anyone ever been to a testimonial match? I don't think I've been to any I, testimonials. I, I, I've been to quite a few um, Arsenal ones. And they were. The, I mean, there was one, I'm trying to remember who it was. And it was just after, it was just before Euro 96 and Glenn Hoddle had been announced as the next England manager after uh, Venables left and Hoddle played for <laughs> Arsenal against oh who was it it might have been Paul Merson's testimonial uh, and Hoddle right. and Gascoigne both turned up in Arsenal shirts and Hoddle hit the bar from about 45 yards <laughs> of course and, ev- and everyone's just sitting there going wow he's going to be the next England manager of course <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of Hoddle's. Yeah, summarised his career. Yeah, the peak of all the hope before the reality set. Yeah, and um, I, I've been a couple. I mean, Tony Adams had two, and I was at both. I mean, the first one, remember, he, Arsenal lost at home to Crystal Palace, ninety three, ninety four, and then they had a second one because he'd been there that long, and they played Celtic, and that ended up being, I think, his like his farewell appearance, mm. really. But yeah, there was a lot. I, I always enjoyed the ones where they'd have a World Eleven or. 
you know a, a mix of teams rather than just A against B because it was it was more fun, especially if it was yeah. players who you'd never expect. And the old was it Maradona in a Spurs shirt from the early yeah, that's right. Yes. <clears throat> Actually, when I see International Eleven, I think you know, Michel Platini, Zico. I don't expect half the Ipswich Town team. I think there's a bit of a con, <laughs> if you ask me. Uh, uh, we then get a follow-up on that headline earlier about Luton's Peter Anderson and whether he's about to sign for Belgian side Antwerp. As mentioned earlier, Luton Town were in dire financial straits at the time and saw this as a way of getting some money back in the coffers. Anderson spoke to the big match and was apparently over in Belgium at the time, watching the club he was about to sign for and looking at some apartments. There's a good chance I'll sign tonight, said Anderson, who could barely speak for all the fries and mayonnaise he was cramming into his mouth. (laughs) After that, Brian Moore introduces the third and final game on today's big match, a six-goal thriller at Goodison Park between Everton and Ipswich Town. The pictures are from Granada, the commentator is Gerald Sinstadt, and Everton are in the dark shirts as if you care. Lions tripped. Um, yes, this one finished Everton 3, Ipswich Town 3. Um, why didn't they put this one on at the start? That's, you have to ask yourself that. <laughs> Talk care. about leave the best till last. Any thoughts on this one? Well, I like the fact that they said Everton in the dark shirts. And you think, why did they say dark instead of blue? And then, of course, you realise because it was the 70s and a lot of people, most people probably were watching in black and white. And then it reminded me yep. that the, some of the advertising boardings you'd have, like it would say, like, colour, you know. On a, in some, <laughs> you know it, was this, it was this brand new thing. I, would think, I think the BBC had only started broadcasting colour a couple of years earlier, which was when, um, I think it was about when Pertwee took over as the Doctor in uh, Doctor Who um, I think that his first episodes were broadcast in colour. Um, yes, but yeah, so it's just it's just weird to think. Obviously, they had to make that distinction, you know. It just, but that's as much as they cared. So I don't care. It's blue. It's just like um, I also noticed this was the Goodison where you had the giant curve behind the goal. Yes, where you had that giant cut out of the stand. Um, and my favourite, um, my favourite advertising hoarding is of all time, Mournflake. They're back. Mournflake oats. Yeah, yeah, yes. the breakfast cereal of funeral directors. <laughs> <laughs> Made that joke about twenty times now. It's still, something to <laughs> still as fresh as the first time. Yeah, still as fresh as the no, actually no. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> I, I love the reminder that this was the seventies, and you could have uh, embassy slim panatellas on the yes. board and behind one of the goals, <laughs> and uh, it's you know a, a different age. But it, uh, there was like bet with Joe Coral, I think, which is now mm-hmm. Corals. Um, and I think from all three games, there was sponsored for Esso. And I guess this yes, would have yes. been the, the peak time for the uh, the old medal medallions. But um, well, what I liked so about the Esso one is it literally just said Esso like six times. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no so, kind so. of there was no kind of Esso what it is, you know, like no or, or any kind of like Esso building for the future or some kind of crappy <laughs> slogan. It was just Esso, 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 Esso. You know, get the hint. Repetition. <laughs> Yes, well, I noticed actually that Esso were at all three matches, as were Vision Hire. Um, yes. So they were putting themselves about a bit. <laughs> it's strange that, like in the current era, we talk about betting adverts being everywhere, and back then it was all car products, as though like you know th- this was the next yeah. thing. It's like you know, oil's just as damaging for the environment as gambling, but uh, yeah, different times, <laughs> different priorities. It was Castrol GTX, yeah. I think, took up yes. half of the the end behind one of the goals. <laughs> There were a lot of sort of car-themed adverts on uh, this match. Um, the, we had, uh, I don't know if you saw Gandhi brake linings. Uh, yes. The, the left-hand end of the pitch. 
uh, was one. Um, associated tyres. Associated tyres, yes. And um, one that I used to see a lot back in the day, and I never really knew what it was. I thought it was a brand of confectionery, but it's Mintex. Do we know what Mintex is? Oh, I've heard of them. Isn't... Oh, I can't think. Are they are... It's a brand of car brakes, so more brake-related oh, yeah. uh, fun to be had there. But that's because back in the day, football was for blokes, wasn't it? And blokes had cars, <laughs> and birds didn't. <laughs> um, well, oh yeah, Amoco, um, the petrol company, which is these days is owned by BP. Um, and what else have I got? Oh yeah, M6 Cash and Carry Traders Only Haydock was a little small <laughs> one. Um, Haydock being in that area, um, Vladivar Vodka, a few others there. And um, yeah, we mentioned the kits, I suppose, really, or sort of obliquely anyway. I, I quite like that Ipswich yellow blue yellow kit. They should always wear yellow blue yellow as, as an away set of colours for me. I, just a thing I have about Ipswich Town, I'm sorry to say. Um, again, no sighting of any team lineups, but did we spot any any um, well-known players among the Everton and Ipswich ranks? Um, well, I think I recently read uh, an article and, and listened to a podcast about Ipswich from the early 80s. And um, some of the names there, like obviously Mills and, and Eric Gates, who I think was one of these players who yep. was kind of a... Uh, they, he was billed as one of these who never quite fulfilled his potential. Um, hmm. he, he did well, especially as, as Ipswich when they went on to win the, the UEFA Cup. And um, a very young George Burley with magnificent hair and sideburns. Yes. <laughs> future Ipswich and Scotland manager. And there was another hmm. um, national team, future national team manager on the pitch. And did we spot him? Um, this is hmm. for the, this is to, to win the car, if you can name that platinum. <laughs> um, Brian Hamilton, who's playing for. Uh, oh, of course. Uh, uh, I think he was playing for Ipswich, yes, at the time, a future Northern Ireland player and manager mm. uh, was on there. But yes, Eric Gates, who scored the third Ipswich down goal. Um, anything we spotted sort of during the match? Any sort of peripheral stuff? Um, well, the camera angle at one point became really strange. I think it was at the start of the second half. It looked like yeah. it was in a hall of mirrors. I don't know if they <laughs> had to change the position or just the way that it was where it was. Because I remember from watching games at Goodison and it was always a bit you know sometimes you're behind a pillar and things like that but it really kind of inverted at one point when it was trying to look so far down at the near touchline it kind of looked like it looked really out of sync um but yeah I guess if it was sort of local tv then sharing on the network you didn't have the the breadth of coverage you do now <laughs> yeah that was sort of harks back to something I said earlier on it was something about sort of off-center camera angles and all sorts of funny stuff going on there um, and a, a lovely electronic scoreboard at one end of the pitch, which was very go-ahead for 1975. But I think as well, they also had the the attendance, and um, <laughs> yeah, they were sort of making a point that both Everton and Liverpool noted their lowest attendances of the season within the week. And I'm thinking, like, <laughs> is that some kind of big opinion or piece about sort of the economic? in the area where people are struggling to pay for tickets and that. But one thing I did notice about the scoreboard was that after the, the teams, they had in brackets a number afterwards. I think after Everton, it had a num- uh, number eight. And after Ipswich, it had a number one. And oh, I'm trying to think, like, pools? was that... Yeah, sort of thinking. like it, it was either pools or... It wasn't their position in the table at the time, was it? No, just, and it wasn't the shirt numbers of the scorers or anything like that, I don't think so. Uh, unless, mm. while we weren't looking, one of the goalkeepers scored. Um yeah, no, that was a bit of a mystery, I must admit. Um, it seems to be a thing that we mentioned, I think, on the first podcast we did about sort of general carping about supposedly low attendances when when they were like raking in <laughs> twenty five and thirty five thousand people. Which, you know, lucky to get it. 
Um, I spotted when uh, Latchford scored. Bob Latchford scored for Everton. Uh, it was their second goal. Um, as he scored, these two young oiks ran onto the pitch <laughs> and joined in yeah. the celebrations. Um, <laughs> but nobody seemed to care either. No. No one seemed to be in a rush to get them off. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, one Except of them was Jimmy wearing Selvel, a... maybe. <laughs> well, <Sorry>. indeed. <laughs> One of them was wearing a leather jacket over a really naff jumper, I noticed, and um, and his mate was wearing a black top, black trousers, and a white shirt with a wing collar so wide I thought he was being attacked by a seagull. Um, See, maybe he hadn't run onto the pitch. He just got swept up by a breeze or something. <laughs> I think he must have done. The style at the time reminds me of that urchin who ran on. Was it Old Trafford? And as the ball <laughs> oh, ran yeah. loose, he had a shot <laughs> on goal. <laughs> yes. Uh, it probably was around this time, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear um, also during the game there was a I don't know if you saw it there was a point where um, the goalkeeper I think it was the Ipswich goalkeeper caught the ball and Mick Lyons of Everton ran up and just basically barged into the goalkeeper as if say have that just, and again <laughs> no one blinked no one sort of played a blind bit of notice to it it was just all part of the game thank you very much yes um, so um, other than that uh, just a sort of summary of, uh, a potted summary of the game um, there was a cross into the Ipswich box mispunched by the keeper Paul Cooper which allowed Martin Dobson to tap in from close range um, another close range shot was scored by Bob Latchford and a short back pass allowed Ipswich to intercept the ball and it was volleyed in Nelinho style by Mick Lambert for Ipswich's first goal of the match and uh, yeah, in the second half, Dobson got his second goal for Everton. Mick Mills set up David Johnson for Ipswich. It was 3-2. And then a bit of a penalty area scramble from which the aforementioned Eric Gates managed to level the score at 3-3. And Brian Moore there referred to the exciting match that we've just seen and tells us that's it. Except to add that we should watch on the ball the following Saturday and the big match uh, the day after that. In closing the programme, Brian Moore got back on his soapbox to again talk about the need for all officials <laughs> to make sure goalies don't move before a penalty and other players not encroaching into the penalty area. Give it a rest, Brian, for God's sake. <laughs> I, was, peace now. I was hoping for something VAR-like where he'd say that maybe the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the we camera- haven't seen a <laughs> secret camera angle. Yeah, that someone in the stand is watching the TV footage and should report to the referee. Yeah. <laughs> We need action now from our referees, he says, before being cut off prematurely by the replay of the penalty incident. And that accompanies the closing credits and the theme tune. Um, I say closing credits. There were, I don't know if you noticed, there was only like two. Um, there was the production team, which featured... What was the famous name on the production team list? Martin Tyler. Martin Tyler. 75-year-old Martin Tyler, as he is now. Um, this was where he began his commentating, uh, where he began his career in TV. At least he uh, started his commentating career the year before for Southern Television. Ended up going up to um, Granada, I think it was in the end, in the eighties. Um, yep, and um, yeah, production team and producer. That was it. That was your credits. I know they were economising a lot in the nineteen seventies, but bloody hell, I didn't, didn't think they they couldn't afford any letters to put on the uh, on the titles. Um, any closing thoughts then about this episode of big, uh, the big match? Because it's the first time we've covered the big match, and obviously one tends to compare with match of the day. Um, as I said before, match of the day a bit more formal. Um, did we have a sort of preference if we had to kind of put together the ideal football highlight show? Which bits of 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 this would you have nicked? I like the informality of it and the letters yeah. bit, but it it did seem slightly less 
polished, if you like, like the fact mm. that they just came into the match and it was just like, yeah, just get on with it. You know, it's like there's, there's these inconsistencies where you, you know, you sort of for the first match, which goes on for like three hours and they've got like all the detail in it. And then the second two are just like kind of, hey, something happened, you know, kind of get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of, it just felt a bit, yeah, inconsistent in that way. It felt like it should have needed to be a bit more polished, but I like this sort of, I like the interaction bits and the sort of, I mean, mm can't stand it when it's really boring. I mean, I, I mean, all the bits where they talk about transfers and stuff on um, Match of the Day, it's just like, don't care, you know, really don't care. I mean, it's, I suppose because it's pointless now. It's like, at the time it would have been interesting, but mm. now it's, I don't care whether someone goes to Antwerp or not. Because you know, <laughs> I've never even what? heard of that guy. I mean, I, I know a bit about 74. No, I've never heard of him. Peter Anderson, there you go, he's famous now. Mm. I, I did like the letters bit because it is uh, again it's the 70s 80s whatever equivalent of and we've gone through some of your tweets and yeah. they publish the full address and here, here's the at of the person if you want to send them some na- 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 naked photos or sign, sign them up for an email subscription service but it's um, it's, um it, it, was, it, it worked quite nicely I mean it's weird I think the the kind of pros and cons of having the the regional networks feed into it kind of it did lose that consistency that that Rich mentioned and I think where obviously that that's how ITV worked at the time and I think had it been BBC with a similar format it might have been a bit more uniform and a bit more consistent but um, mm. I mean I, I did it's interesting to see this you know from 1975 when people complain about match of the day now and it's like oh we don't care about the tweets we just want to see the football whereas mm. in 1975 he spent as much time moaning about the penalty and the mm. keeper off the line as they did i think with the stoke villa game you know and this is kind of you've got brian moore on there brian moore speaks it's like brian moore soapbox and it was just amusing to see that people moaning today think well the same kind of stuff happened now. Gary Lineker, mm. you know, is very much the front man of match of the day. He talks a lot. He talks to different people, and maybe it's the pundits and the guests you don't like. But it's very much a similar format, and I, I, it was fun to watch because it's the similarities you get. And you know, they're moaning now about VAR, or you know, but mm. even then, they're moaning about referees. Why aren't the referees doing something to get rid of this <laughs> scourge of the modern game? Um, you know, things don't change. It may the people saying it changed, the message changed, but it's the same stuff. Indeed, exactly. I mean, I, I just um, what what I thought was interesting was on match of the day, you'd get like in the news section, they'd sort of show you like the top of the table and the bottom of the table, so you knew how. They, there was none of that. They didn't have a single caption showing any league table, so it was just sort of like, look, you don't need to know that stuff. Just just concentrate on the game we're showing you, and, and that's all you need to know. How old was the big match at this point? Like, how big many match, seasons had it been running? The big match started in uh, 1968 or 9, I think. I can't oh, remember right. off the top of my head. So it, and that was, as I say, it was basically... So it was well established then. I was just wondering yeah. if maybe this was like their first or second season. It was just like finding their feet. But they were well established then. It's no, a it poor was, show then in that case. It's a bit yeah. shoddy. Well, when they started off, it was Brian Moore. And then Jimmy Hill was a sort of um, co-presenter. And so... Brian Moore would sort of introduce the games and then in between they'd often have a guest like they'd get a player in and this is something else you wouldn't see nowadays they'd actually get a player in who'd maybe done well on that Saturday afternoon and they'd have him in the studio talking to Jimmy Hill afterwards and talking about how he, how the game went I mean you just 
would not happen at all now. And Jimmy Hill was there for a few years, and then he got the uh, the job offer to go over to the BBC, and then left Brian Moore on his own essentially. So, uh, so yeah, been running for about sort of seven, seven, six, seven years by now. I think it was bedded in. Indeed. So there we go. Um, that's that episode of The Big Match. Um, we have got some feedback following the last episode, and of course it was about Scandinavian advertising boards. Um, uh, we, if you remember... Did, if you, we, did we get accused of war crimes at all? <laughs> somebody may that? have said something along those lines, I think. <laughs> um, the, we, we mentioned on the last podcast, in case you didn't hear it, we, there was a, a game in 1987 at Hillsborough, um, and it was... Um, was that the Arsenal Watford one? I can't. I'm no, that to was Coventry. That. Coventry, sorry, Coventry. Coventry. Yes, Coventry Sheffield Wednesday. Quarter final of the FA Cup. Yeah, and like masses and masses of Scandinavian themed um, advertising boards, and we wondered why that might be the case. I had an inkling that someone might know, but I wasn't quite prepared for the thoroughness of the answers that we got. And I need to read some of these messages out. Uh, we heard from Jacob Stoving. Uh, on Twitter, I hope that's how I pronounce the surname. Apologies if not, Jacob. Jacob Stoving. <laughs> Stoving. That might be how you do it. Jacob. Um, and Jacob says, uh, starting in 1969, there was a live game every Saturday when the local leagues were on winter break, which was between November and March. He said, uh, this was in Norway, Denmark and Sweden. That's the reason for the Scandinavian love of English football. In the beginning, it was mostly BBC Midlands or something like that. So we got a lot of Derby, Wolves, Stoke, etc., but soon we got matches from the rest of the country too. Uh, Jacob went on to say, uh, he went on to send us a list of every British game shown on Scandinavian TV to prove his point. Thank you very much indeed, Jacob. I mean, that's just, or it may even be Jacob, apologies if it is, but um, Jacob will go for, I think, on this. Use the deliberate English. War criminal. <laughs> um, that Which is just someone who's been arrested in Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Taxi. <laughs> <laughs> he wore a, he wore a jacket, <laughs> Kenny jacket. Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we got a lot of people sort of saying, "Well, haven't you ever seen a foreign brand name on an advertising board?" Well, yeah, of course, but not that many. Not and not <laughs> yeah, that quite, one yeah. part of the world. And and more to the point, ones that you've never heard of. I mean, yeah, we've all seen foreign advertising around yeah. things, especially so nowadays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like you know, these were all kind of just really obscure, you know, clearly, clearly. Scandinavian brands. Indeed. Um, but thank you very much indeed, Jacob, for, for sending that very thorough um, answer. And other people sort of chimed in as well. Jan Inger Bjorn, Bjornengen. Hello to you, Jan Inger. Yeah, he says, and this is why there's such an interest in English football in Norway. You saw a game every Saturday. It was marvellous. He said, I miss those days. Um, also on Twitter, Dover Marksman. He said, one of the Saturday 3pm kickoffs was always shown live across Scandinavia. Philip R. on Twitter said a Swedish producer bought the first game for around $15,000 and Danish and Norwegian TV hung on. That's what that was. And um, the uncannily named GTGHJ on Twitter uh, said if you Google tips extra, all one word, uh, he said you'll have the answer. And I think that's kind of the tie. And it was basically to show football matches to tie in with the Scandinavian pools companies, I think, that so they had something to feature on their coupons, I think. I think that's what tips extra was. So thank you very much indeed. And also Dodge on Twitter said, um, I'd guess Scandinavia had a live Saturday TV game, as Ireland did too. So expect to see some Irish advertising boards cropping up in future episodes of Match of the Day and the big match. 
So thank you very much indeed, all of you, for pointing all that stuff out. I didn't expect to get um, so much information. Still doesn't explain why there were quite so many at that one particular game. I'd have expected maybe one or two for the Scandinavian tie-in, but, uh, but there we are. Well, that, that was an FA Cup tie, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, quarterfinal. Yeah, so I wonder if that would have been... Special occasion. Uh, back, back in the day, yeah, like they would have sold it on a one-off basis and maybe over a season... In the league, it might have been a, a larger thing, but yeah, yes. it was. It was strange. I mean, I've you know from from family and stuff, but I mean, there's there's pictures in Yari Lippmann's autobiography. There's a picture of him in a Liverpool kit, which is one of the Umbro ones, I think, with the pinstripes right. from back in the early '80s. And there's one of Sammy Hoopie in a, a similar kit. So, you know, that's how big these things are. I mean, there's mm. it's when you go over there, it's really really weird. <laughs> cool. They like all that. That's good. Hello to all our fans in Scandinavia, both of you. Um, and uh, I think that's about it. We've done all the f- feedback, so that's pretty much it, um, except to say that um, before we go, a quick reminder, if you would like to support us on Patreon, we would love that. Uh, for just £3 a month, you'll get instant access to this podcast once each episode goes live. No two-week waiting for the free version to come along. You get to hear the podcast straight away and you'll get to vote on the year that we focus on in the next podcast. Uh, Make your donation £5 a month and you'll get access to the bonus podcast we'll be recording. And Rich and I have decided we are going to record a bonus podcast in two weeks time. We're going to be uh, talking about the official film of the 1988 European Championships called Tour. So uh, that's going to be a bonus. You can only hear that if you are a Patreon subscriber. So... Do join us. And if you donate £10 a month, we'll come around and build a nuclear reactor in your back garden. How about that for a bit of bonus material? Um, your <laughs> I support. Don't think I signed up for that. <laughs> yeah. I'll supervise. You build. Oh, all right then. That's division of labour sorted. Your uh, support will help us pay for research material, which in turn will hope hopefully make us. Uh, I'll say that again because that made no sense at all. Your support will help us pay for research material, which in turn will help us make the podcast more interesting for you to listen to. But that aside, for, we, for sorry, instance, I was going to say, for instance, this week we've gone out and purchased Emmanuel on VHS. <laughs> Emmanuel, <laughs> and we will be reporting back. I'll be researching that vigorously later. <laughs> <laughs> curtains closed for that one (laughs) pardon but that aside we'd love you to send us your comments and feedback if you feel like dropping us a line you can do via email at uh, admin at the footballattic.com you can get us on twitter twitter.com forward slash footballattic and I think I'm right in saying rich um, facebook.com forward slash footballattic I think that's the right address I didn't write it down but it, I think that, so. that'll be just look for the football attic on facebook we're on there yeah. um and also if you want to follow us on patreon uh, then get along to patreon.com forward slash football attic uh other than that we just look forward to hearing from you give us any feedback you've got on any of the subjects we've raised uh, during the course of this podcast if you want to talk about um humorously titled brands of licorice in denmark then um you know this is your opportunity effectively uh, but we look forward to hearing from you. Um, gents, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been great talking to you. Um, Rich Nelson, before you go, um, tell the good ladies and gentlemen listening in where we can find you and your wonderful products and projects online. Uh, uh, well, if you'd like to know more about Finnish football, because most of your listeners are now probably from the Nordic regions, um, <laughs> the Finnish Football Show podcast is trying to exploit every single avenue of Euro 2020. Yeah. I'm sure Finland will be eliminated by the time this goes out, but it's, um, there's various, yeah, we've, we've interviewed half the national team for that. It's been wow. quite fun. 
Um, and then if you're into 80s movies, so if you're a nostalgia fan where Chris Rich, uh, half of the people that we seem to know through Twitter or podcasting have been guests on, um, The Sound of Football, etc. Uh, Beat Max Video Club is uh, is nearly 100 episodes on there now. Yes. Uh, going all the way back to Rich's debut on With Nell and I. and <laughs> We did the, uh, was it the 82 and 86 World Cup films? We did, and yet here we still are. <laughs> <laughs> we, we haven't quite scraped the barrel to the bottom yet, but uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, they, it's all on there. And uh, as I said, Escape to Victory, Gregory's Girl, if you fancy a bit of uh, oh. Bella Bella with your football, uh, <laughs> yeah, all on there. So, podcast of choice, fine stuff it is too. And uh, keep up the good work on that. Rich doing some fine work there with the podcasts and uh, and all the work that you do there. Uh, but um, just to say thank you very much for being our special guest today. As our first, we, we wanted to find a safe pair of hands to, to introduce our first guest. And, and you know, it could have gone horribly wrong. But uh, we, we, we know you of old, Rich, and, um, and it's been great to talk to you about this. And thank you for your observations about the big match. No, thank you for having me. And it's nice to be a, a pundit on the panel as an ITV star. Indeed so, yes. <laughs> and, and thank you also to you, Rich Johnson. Good to speak to you again. Pleasure as always, sir. Splendid stuff. And listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, from Rich, Rich, and myself, it's goodbye to you all. Goodbye. Guten Tag. Au <laughs> revoir. <laughs>